You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. Listen, let's get one thing straight. Guns don't kill people. And Channel 62 has the lowest ratings in the history of television. What they need is a new station manager. No, not him. Forget it. No way. A man of action. Sorry to disturb you at this hour, but I have something you want. A new TV? It broadcast programs no one had ever seen. Wednesday at 9, don't miss an all-new episode of The Silencer of the Lambs. Then one night, Roy and Helen Nabel got sucked in. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary sleazeweights, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Next week, we're going to be asking why God... Why did you take him from us? And now we have to watch Scream 6 without him. Uh, we're talking Wes Craven, our boy. So join that sleaze. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patient subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes uh, every single month, which we have been doing for over five years now. There's something like 130, 140 plus bonus episodes as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre films. So if you haven't made the jump yet, patreon.com slash podcast. Definitely uh, recommend doing that. And speaking of which, we did have a bunch of people make the jump this week. Uh, we had uh, Benjamin Asprey, uh, Robert Carney, Nick uh, Schneider, uh, Delaney Slater, uh, Human, uh, Pedro Henrique Cabral y Silva, uh, all right, partner, keep on rolling, baby. Y'all know what time it is. Uh, signed <laughs> up uh, from uh, upgraded from five dollars a month to ten dollars a month. Joining us for the uh, virtual screenings that we do on the last Thursday of every month, which we just did an awesome one with Clint Eastwood and the Monkey Baby. Every which way, yes. uh, but loose, which is wonderful. Great vibes oh, all around. We also had Dark Alliance uh, sign up and Dorian Griffin and Joseph uh, M. Uh, we had Coltrane Seek signed up, uh, upgrade from $5 a month to $10 a month as well. We had Brendan Michael Coughlin, Mitchell Camp, uh, Matt. Uh, who else do we got here? Uh, Pat, uh, Shane Karshan, also upgrading $5 to $10. So also joining for his first real screens. If you want to get in on them, they're pretty fun. Uh, yes, we had are. Justin Solly sign up, Baja Topaz. Uh, we had John uh, Kiritsis Kirit- uh, sign up for an entire year of the show at $10 a month. So that guy is getting all the virtual screenings. Uh, we also had Uberland Gizbar sign up, Martin Cusack. Uh, Noah Vassar, uh, Dylan Garner, Alex Petard, Dawson Martin. Wow, we had quite a few people. Uh, Adrian, and last but not least, Trey Boyt. So thanks so much to all of you folks for signing up. Hope you are enjoying uh, those bonus episodes. That's the one plug for the week. The other plug uh, for the week, as always, is Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you were listening on either one of those platforms, scroll down to the very bottom and give us a good old rating and review down there. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners. And the very last plug, as always, is merch. Uh, if you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist uh, Trevor Henderson did for the show, you can get that put on basically anything that you can think of. You can get a pen, you can get a hoodie, you can get a poster, a pillow, a notebook. You guys have bought a lot of things, and that link is in the description as well as over at sleazoidspodcast.com for anyone interested. 
But that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks over on the main feed uh, would have heard from us, and we would have had special returning guest Will Meneker of the Chapo Trap House podcast uh, make his return and discuss with us American screen legend, Mr. Clint Eastwood, and and also, you know, his official Twitter account. He's out there right now. Someone on his team <laughs> yeah. is uh, posting great photos of him every day. He's still out and about. Love to see him just golf putting gas in his car, you know, yeah, golfing, yeah, just doing all kinds of great old man things. But last week, (laughs) or two weeks ago, sorry, we talked about uh, assassination thrillers starring Clint Eastwood uh, with a double feature of his bizarre ostensible Bond parody film, The Iger Sanction from 1975, which featured a uh, late 40s Clint Eastwood learning how to mountain climb and doing mountain climbing that was so dangerous that uh, actual, actual mountain climbing on his crew doing the stunt work actually died uh, shooting yeah. the film. Yeah, it's, and it, it does have some unbelievable stunt work and cinematography, but yeah, there, I guess there, <laughs> there was a price to pay, unfortunately. Yeah, some of the uh, humor of uh, trying to satirize <laughs> the racism and homophobia of Bond, uh, Clint Eastwood kind of plays a little straight in that film in a way that yeah. doesn't completely register. Pretty much um, just results in, in homophobia. Yes. <laughs> but uh, and, he tries uh, his best, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, and, and we paired that film, though, with 1993's In the Line of Fire, a cat-and-mouse-dad-cable classic directed by Wolfgang Peterson and featuring a 60-year-old Clint Eastwood still doing his own stunts, still mm. involved in political paranoia, conspiracies, and an absolute blast breaking both of those down with Will. So if you haven't heard that episode, that was two weeks ago over on the main feed. Go check it out. Uh, and then last week over on the Patreon for our exclusive listeners over there, uh, uh, Jamie and I, we, we kind of taunted the listeners a little bit and we said, <laughs> which one of you is going to kill us with a double feature of, yeah. uh, play no Misty for me. <laughs> That's right. We That's did, good. uh, Clint Eastwood's borderline giallo California stalker thriller film play Misty for me from 1971, where he is being stalked by a psycho fan played by Jessica Walter, an incredible performance. And we paired it with Oliver Stone's adaptation of Eric Bogosian's uh, very anxious, very angry shock jock uh, film talk radio from 1988. Uh, So if you haven't heard that episode over on the Patreon feed last week, we had a lot of fun uh, (laughs) asking you guys to hunt us down and kill us. The original (laughs) podcasters, radio hosts. Yeah. 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 Incredible film, especially, uh, talk radio i mean i I just i absolutely fell in love with that one so highly recommend absolutely but uh moving on to this week we have a uh very special returning guest making his annual appearance where once again he holds the belt over every other previous guest and every time he comes (laughs) on he just solidifies that even further we have our australian correspondent one of our very first guests who brought us our our first uh australian horror films uh that guest is andrew law from the bunta vista podcast andrew how you doing I'm doing very well, guys. How are you? Good. Wonderful. Nice to hear Thanks your for voice. Coming on again. Yeah. 
It's, oh, soothing. it's great to be back. <laughs> we're gonna grow. We're gonna grow old together, fellas. <laughs> That's right. Wait. That's right. Even we'll here, despite time, despite the the time difference, this is the first time ever that we got the time difference exactly right, and there's been no scheduling issue of any kind. It feels good. Honestly, <laughs> we did it. Took, took <laughs> five only, years, but we pulled it off. Yeah, only taking us half a decade. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, welcome, welcome back, buddy. We're glad to have you. And and being the very first guest we ever had on this show, I'm sure you know the drill. So we ask you to bring two films with you, and why you paired these films together. And uh, you you brought a pretty funny pair with you this week. So explain yourself. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I've I've bought all kinds of movies on the show over the years. There's there's been some comedy in the past. There's been like a like Dead Heat and. Um, Wild Zero. That's true. Dead Heat, honestly, mm-hmm. up there with one of my favorite films that someone has introduced us to on this show. So thank yeah, you. I've Dead now Heat since bought the Vinegar for Syndrome me. 4K and watched it many times. So, <laughs> oh, oh yeah. yeah, both of those are bad. Uh, yeah, we've had some we've had some horror and some kind of some serious stuff and everything. But this is a a pair of comedies, um, which I guess the, like the the theme here that they're sharing is. Uh, I would probably describe it as like a joyous obsession with television. Um, and also that they both offer a very distinct window into a mode of content consumption that has been almost completely superseded now by the world that we're living in. Um, That's true. Also, they're both, they're both inherently very silly movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my, my wife was saying to me recently that she saw a little clip of uh, Aika Watiti talking about um, making, a, making a movie out of the sketch that they had done for what we do in the shadows, which uh, started off as a, a little video that they made with, you know, a couple of their friends, uh, which is them, them sitting around on couches, uh, just these vampires talking about their housemates and, uh, and all of their little disagreements. And they were trying to make a movie out of it. And Taika Waititi said, you know, this is really fucking stupid. And uh, Jermaine Clement said, uh, dude, the world needs stupid shit. <laughs> yes. and I agree you know absolutely I agree. Yeah. And this show it's all about it's all about the trash you know we're digging That's through right. the cultural cultural detritus and finding interesting things in there so the two movies are uh, 1989's UHF the uh, the Weird Al classic his his first motion picture um, after finding a success in in records and music videos and 1993's Stay Tuned uh, starring John Ritter, which is also uh, an extremely TV obsessed movie. Uh, TV obsessed movie, and I would say the other the other big similarity that these movies share is that um, watching too much TV will simultaneously be your downfall and your retribution. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and and I, I'm excited to get into it when we do. But it, it is funny that I think both of these movies have very different attitudes about TV. Mm-hmm where UHF seems kind of very pro the idea of weirdos making bizarre content and just having a great time and sort of like the the almost freedom of television in a way or, you know, tapping into a frequency like that. Whereas uh, Stay Tuned is a little bit more of a parable of uh, you need to get off the goddamn couch and talk to your and wife. have sex with your wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> have sex with your hot wife. She yeah. is trying to get you into the other room. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Turn yeah, off so. the football. Well, yeah, and also I suppose the uh, the stronger message that network television is a force of Satan. 
Yeah. <laughs> also, Absolutely. in both cases, for both films, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. So we are we are we are moving away from the world of radio last week, and we are moving straight over into TV, which is why I thought this was kind of like just a, once again one of those just little happy accidents that keeps uh, yeah. keeps happening to us in the programming on the show that we don't intend. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited. Let's uh, let's jump into it here. Let's start things off with UHF. He's Conan, the librarian. Today we're teaching poodles how to fly. We beat up the networks. George Newman, he starts where the others stop. We're the number one station in town. Ah! Orion Pictures presents Weird Al Yankovic in UHF, the movie. All right, we are talking UHF, uh, a.k.a. the uh, vidiot of UHF. And I wanted to address this right up front because uh, Andrew, being an Australian, is the uh, version of the film that you watched the vidiot from UHF? Uh, I believe my my Plex server matches stuff to their local titles. Oh, okay. Uh, and, because and it, because apparently so, this is the international title, and we did hear from some some people when we posted that we were going to be talking about this that there would be some controversy over uh, <laughs> which title it got. Because from what I understand, UHF obviously it stands for ultra high frequency, and which was something mm-hmm. you know that the actual local TV stations did use. But it was kind of going out of fashion even when the film was made, and they kind of you know uh, you know uh, Weird Al even saw that like you know this is going to be kind of a dated reference to name the movie after in like five years from now um so he wanted to just call it the vidiot or vidiot which to me just makes it sound like he wanted to like parody like videodrome or something which because it was also about a network executive looking for like strange content for viewership so i'm not sure if that's exactly why but the compromise was internationally it's going to be called the vidiot uh, of UHF and in America it was called UHF that was the deal that he eventually made with Orion even though apparently he hates the title UHF um, well he, the, the, he was saying that uh, that they called it UHF originally they, they sort of insisted on it and he you know like you said he was saying yeah this this is kind of not even that much of a thing anymore and then when they did the international release he was saying call it Call it, you know, the vidiots or or <laughs> vidiot or something like this, and they said, "Ah, oh, we'll call it the vidiot from UHF, so that it's still <laughs> tied to the American release, which yeah. <laughs> which was like very poorly received." You know, it's like, yeah. Thank goodness you're tying it to this uh, movie that has not done well on its initial release. <laughs> yeah. Incredible, but it is the uh, 1989 um, American uh, sort of sketch comedy film co-written by and starring Weird Al Yankovic and uh, directed by his then uh, manager, Jay uh, Levy. And obviously, I'm assuming a lot of people are going to be familiar with uh, the California comedian and accordion playing dork and the god, kind of the god of the musical pastiche, Mr. Mr. Weird Al. But in case anyone uh, is is not, I guess this is our first time ever uh, talking about him. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is let's start up front. What is what's everyone's relationship with uh, with with the man? How do you feel? I, when I was growing up, I really liked him. I didn't. I didn't listen to a ton of like there was. If I recognized the song he was making fun of, that's when I would be interested in it. And that's probably mm. for most people. 
Um, there was one that I really liked. I don't remember a lot of them anymore because it's been. I was uh, I was a kid, but I I do remember uh, really liking um, Amish Paradise. <laughs> I think that that's that one's classic. Kind that's a big of a one. Banger. That was like his first like <laughs> huge huge single. Like, yeah, yeah. I think I could probably still like recite it. Oh, that it might not be on, true. Actually, know? it might have been Eated. It might have been the Michael Jackson one. That was yeah. I know that that one was a big one. Um, and I think I was introduced to him. There was some game show back in the day and for some reason he was on it doing eat it or some contestant was on it doing eat it and that's how i was kind of introduced to the parody world and weird al and all that damn for you andrew uh yeah i had like a a sort of passing familiarity with him when i was when i was quite young and then i think probably in my i'm gonna say like early 20s maybe um, somebody, somebody gave me a copy or, or showed me a copy of like, I don't know, Running with Scissors or Poodle Hat around that sort of era, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh no, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna say younger than that because um, I think you can you can date yourself by going back through Weird Al Al's albums. You can, and if the yeah, and like you, you know, you can potentially find a one of the songs where on a lot of his albums, he'll have a, a poker medley of like hits from that year, you know? Yeah. Um, where, as, yeah, where as he says, you know, about those kinds of songs, he's got sort of different modes of doing songwriting. He's got the straight up, uh, straight up, I have just switched out the lyrics with funny lyrics yeah. uh, <laughs> version of a parody. Yeah. He's got the, the style parodies where he does an original song in the style of another artist. Um, which tend to be the ones that I enjoy the most, mm. and then he also mm. has these um, these like very fast paced uh, poker medleys of a whole bunch of songs where he doesn't change any of the lyrics. As he says, it's it's the arrangement that's funny. You know? Gotcha. And, gotcha. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you can often uh, so if you go back through his albums, you can potentially find uh, you know one of those poker medleys that kind of has all the songs that were big hits the year you were in high school. You know. Yeah. Damn. Well, that, um, that's when everyone gets introduced to him. And due to my age, I'm unfortunately about to date myself because honestly, the most aware I probably ever was of him was like I obviously knew Amish Paradise. I knew Eat It. I knew some of like the big ones. I knew the um, yeah. the My Sharona one, like My Bologna. Um, <laughs> yeah. But probably the biggest hit for him when I was the most aware was White and Nerdy. Uh, because that thing spread like wildfire through the schools before any of us knew what a meme was you know like my parents knew about that song and there's no way that they even knew what the original song by chameleon air was like there's literally not (laughs) a chance like like i imagine the popularity of eminem maybe helped the fact that he was doing like a silly white rapper thing like i have no idea but that song was fucking huge and it was definitely at the time led me to go back through all of his own old albums and discover you know, uh, you know, his his style that that he he basically sort of lovingly says is, is uh, a version of kind of like the musical form of the exaggerated caricatures of like Mad Magazine. And that mm-hmm. he also yeah. combined it with, with like a little bit of, you know, he loved people like Elton John and he loved, you know, sort of sketch and, and, and stand up um, comedians. Uh, and also uh, he, you know, when he first got started out, he was just like a dude who just listened to like radio DJs. Like he talks about his origins of listening to that Dr. Demento like comedy show. And he would send him cassette tapes of his stuff in between like playing coffee shops and, and, and stuff like that. So he had very, very humble musical comedy origins. 
And uh, at, at the point of UHF here, which was 1989, uh, he had officially already had some hit albums. He had done some TV specials and there was only one place left to conquer. So UHF was conceived a movie extension of Weird Al's comedic sensibility and, and his brand. And he became to come up. He began to come up with all of these sketches about popular films and, and TV shows in the same way that, that he did uh, with with songs, which was not like an entirely unprecedented idea by any means. Like we've discussed sketch comedy uh, before on on the show. We've talked about Monty Python when we paired Meaning of Life with uh, that early Zucker Brothers and John Landis collaboration, Kentucky Fried Movie. Yeah. Uh, and obviously the Zucker Brothers would go on to do some of the most iconic uh, sort of sketch comedy stuff ever like airplane and and the naked gun which weird al would mm-hmm. even appear in himself at a, at a certain point and the uh, stella can, shorts as well i believe we did the stella shorts as well yep so we've done some comedy before and you can definitely feel like him trying to capture some of that kind of musical mischief of of monty python a, a, a little bit here mm-hmm. um although a little bit more than than zucker brothers i guess you could say because when we did python and we talked uh python versus kentucky fried movie we were definitely like man the python guys like they're a little you know they can be a little politically strange sometimes but all of their gags are there's wit to them there's craft to them even when they're being gross and dirty and with kentucky fried movie man that movie just had like some dull stretches where like you kind of see the joke or the idea for a joke but it's just like so lazy and one note hammered it over and over again a lot of the time too like it was something that was a three minute sketch should have been a one minute joke kind of thing a lot of the time oh dude there's a half hour long kung fu sketch in kentucky fried movie called a fistful of yen (laughs) and the entire joke is just that it's a bad kung fu movie and i was like the actual 70s kung fu movies they think that they're making fun of are genuinely funnier movies and right and also had better action so it was just very difficult watch honestly for us kentucky fried movie when we did that episode and so i was glad going back into sketch comedy i think al does a much better um job and has a much more like unique energy to him that's pretty fast and and, and pretty animated yeah. throughout this film where he unites all of these sketches around this idea of just creating the most bizarre low budget television programming anyone's ever seen in order to save a dying local TV channel that he's the manager of. I like his well, overall uh, tone too, because it's just, um, even when he's playing the more, you know, the, the, the straight man as George and he's just having normal conversations, there's still a lot of silliness and ridiculousness and pretty much nonsense that's happening surrounding him. Like for one part where he's introduced, um, uh, his aunt and uncle call him over so that he can receive the the station, and he's just like holding a dog and just shoves it into the punch bowl as he leaves and goes and talks to them. But there's nothing like that's apparently just a joke. gag it's- that only exists, by the way, because the dog wouldn't hit his mark. Oh, and the really? dog, the dog wouldn't like jump into the punch bowl when he was supposed to. So I'll just threw him in there. <laughs> well, that's that's a, I think it worked out because I I thought that just um uh, the just how like sudden it was it was kind of a jarring move for him to do and I, it, it made me laugh pretty hard because i didn't see it coming and there's a bunch of stuff in here that i wasn't expecting because i'm used to him with his tone to be you know it's obviously silly but i didn't think it had much of an edge to it a lot of the time and not it's not to say that this you know this whole movie has that but there are a couple moments in here that i was kind it of doesn't quite have the by. uh the n-word gag from a kentucky <laughs> fried movie is what you're saying no yeah it doesn't have any of that <laughs> But like there is some like animal violence and, and stuff like that and some uh, some pretty some pretty wild moments that I wasn't expecting from Weird Al just because I'm more used to his I guess music and that's from what I've experienced a little bit more like GPG kind of thing 
Um, I think uh, with his with his music, if you like, if you just sort of are cherry picking what he's most known for, which is you know the kind of like a surgeon yeah, type of parody, really commercial that's, kind of thing. Yeah, that sort of stuff is like uh, I think the most surface level of his work. And if okay. you go back through, if if you sort of listen to all of his albums front and back, you will identify a lot of what you're talking about, which is stuff with much more of a kind of like, particularly on his older albums, there's a lot of like, he thinks that being a stalker is very funny. Okay. Um, gotcha. <laughs> like, like, and, and a lot of, um, a lot of like, uh, you know, descriptions of, of people dying and being decapitated. And there's a song, okay. a song on one of his albums called like, um, uh, why does this always happen to me? Where each verse is, you know, him sort of, talking about uh, something like being stuck in traffic, uh, you know, and realizing that it's because there's this massive 30 car pile up and everybody's dead and there's blood everywhere. And he just thinks to himself, why does stuff like this always happen to me? Now I'm going to miss the Simpsons. And (laughs) um, you know, a lot of that sort of stuff. I, I, I stabbed my boss in the face with my, with my good knife. And I think I might've bent the tip a little. Why does all this bad stuff happen to me? Oh, okay. uh, so he's got a, he's got a lot of like quite quite dark um, stuff through his through his music, and I think uh, I don't know if you guys have seen Weird the Al Yankovic story. I think you guys might have talked about that. Uh, I yeah I, I did and did I don't Jamie did you end up watching that? Yeah, I think we the we might one? have both done it. Yeah, newish. Yeah, yeah, I did and I liked it. Yeah, yeah, I was I was both uh, really pleasantly surprised by that movie because when the news was first, oh, they're doing a Weird Al biopic, I was like, oh. Yeah. And, uh, and then when it became apparent what was actually happening when you're watching the movie, yeah, which was... That they were, they were basically doing UHF, but they were like doing it to right. his life story. <laughs> well, and like, uh, like it just, it fit really perfectly because so much of his career had been, you know, satirizing songs by taking an existing structure and swapping in his own jokes. And then they just did that with the formula of a biopic. Yeah. Mm. So we're going to take, take the normal structure you're all used to and then slot in our own jokes and often like switching, switching gears, like, and, uh, and subverting your expectations. They did that very effectively. Yeah. You know, a handful of times throughout that movie where you, you think you've sort of got the rhythm of the movie down. Yeah. You think you sort of know how it's going to work out. And then, and then they, he's they married change. to Madonna and being a drug Lord for like a second. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the, the part that they get to where they say, Michael Jackson has put out a parody of your song. Is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. As soon as they, great. you know, yeah, so so I think like very pleasantly surprised by that movie, but I think if you watch that movie, UHF, and sort of listen to his back catalog of stuff, what I think is pleasantly surprising is how how um clearly his sense of humor comes through across all of those things. Like mm-hmm. how how clear it is that a lot of the writing really reflects what he thinks is funny. Not somebody else wrote a bunch of stuff and they put Weird Al in the movie. Definitely. Um it's it's very obviously all coming from him and his sensibility. No, he has a very uh, rapid fire sense of kind of like anarchy to him, which again is, you know, he has a lot of in- inspirations for with some of the sketch comedy that we were talking about and obviously some of the 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 speed of kind of radio comedy uh, as, as as well, but I I do like mm. how he there you know he's managed to turn them into a form of kind of like controlled chaos in in this. Like all of the sketches in this 
you know, sketch comedy is really, really hard to do and really hard to maintain at at, at feature length and actually kind of unite. And this has a couple of the issues that arise from that that are just in, inherent to trying to do it, not to anything specific to him. But there's always kind of an issue when you do something like this where you do kind of have to halt the wacky momentum of what you're doing in order to fill in a little bit of yeah you know get some exposition going between the characters now i think they do a good job of like kind of still getting some gags into those scenes everywhere that they can and when the sketches do appear they are like the right ratio of like this like unhinged like dream randomness almost and the style Mm -hmm. replication is like you know vivid enough that that i think it works i mean it's not quite like last action hero or something like that where that movie is basically directed as well as the real thing that it's spoofing it's not quite i don't know that jane or or, uh what's what's his name uh jay levy uh, jay levy i don't know if he's quite uh on that level with with the directing but i i did think that yeah you did get a sense of like the way that weird al's mind connects gags to one another and there is like a, a sense of that pacing to it and also there is some heart to this thing i thought a little bit um as, yeah, as well like, like you can tell that community. he has well yeah but he's also doing a little bit of that like you know there's like he is i guess that is part of the expository plotting of the thing is that he's kind of replicating that that one of those like we need to save the community center like yeah. kind of like you know like yeah, old yeah. comedies in, in a way but he is uniting it around all these little guys of you know we should we should be able to get together we should be able to uh make something wonderful and i also appreciated in this film that al is he's the lead but he's not exactly the star of the movie like he lets himself yeah. kind of play this movie universe's straight man for all these wacky performances and, and characters around him which does lead me to believe that he has actual passion for creating this environment where weirdos can kind of thrive and he kind of believes in the silliness and childishness and the almost purity uh, of it in in a way which which helps come through uh, and and stitch everything together because even when like he'll get on a roll of a couple different parodies and I'm like man I wish they wouldn't stop I wish he could just find a structure to like keep flipping between the channels or something like that when when he does it he does it with good intentions i think yeah well, uh, yeah i think um uh, well apparently that was that was part of the issue with the reception of the film is mm-hmm. that people who only knew him from like some of his songs and stuff they they were like oh he's not the weird guy in the movie you know like there's all this weird <laughs> stuff happening around him else, but he's yeah. Yeah, he's he's. Yeah, why am I watching so much Kevin McCarthy, the guy from the like the invasion of the body snatchers movie? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and um, so so he's he's kind of playing the straight man, like him and uh him and uh, Jay Levy were saying that um, the original Secret Life of Walter Mitty was a big Mm, uh, a big influence on the in the conception of the movie, you know. That he's this character moving through a space that is filled with very weird characters and people and everything. And you know he he certainly does stuff like like you're saying about the the gag where he just absolutely no sells tossing a dog into a punch bowl and walking off and <laughs> there's a lot of like really committed physical comedy from him which I really like mm-hmm. but um but I, again I think that that's really of a piece with his comedic sensibility if you listen to a lot of his music like you know the front to back of his albums I think that's a I think it's a pretty clear reflection of his sensibility that in a lot of his songs, like especially the much, much zanier ones, um, 
it is sort of him describing a world of a whole lot of weird shit and weird people and strange characters all coming and going. And he's just moving through the space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so while, while he is sort of, um, you know, seeming like the relative straight man in some of those roles, he is also the person who's uh, conceiving and writing all of the, all of the ideas and jokes of, of all of the weird shit that's happening around his character as well. Mm-hmm. So it's all him, and but apparently that was a cause of some disappointment for some people watching the film. They were like, hey, they should call him kind of Weird Al. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, even that him, him being the, the ultimate, I guess, creative behind these projects too, transfers to the, the plotting itself. Like when they realized that uh, Stanley Spadowski, played by Michael Richards, is like the real king of the, uh, the kids show and he should take over because he's somehow also inspiring all these adults that are in the bar watching him for whatever reason. Um, I just like that he included that as well. Uh, just to say kind of like, uh, like he has his, you know, he starts off as that character, which is interesting. And he's, and he's trying his best to like connect with the kids, but, and he's got that weirdness, but he doesn't have, I guess the like, as extreme physicality as Michael Richards brings to the table. And so when he starts to get into it, and then also he's playing like a very, uh, uh, on purposely like dumb character, like very, very mm. stupid. Um, but it just works with like the, the but physicality again, of it all. Stupidity in the Weird Al universe is a form of uh, purity. It's also yes. like wonderful. It's a star. It's, it's the star making quality is that, you yes. know, the guy is, is that, which is why I, I do kind of appreciate that even when Weird Al gets like mean with his comedy, it is always in a way that's kind of, you know, uh, kind of nice in a way still somehow. He just, I don't know. Yeah. He has a, he has a very generous attitude about who can be funny and who's talented and, you know, finding these weird qualities in people that are that are are wonderful while also mm-hmm. filling this obviously with tons of uh pastiches of popular things that would make people interested in going and seeing the movie because apparently they gave this a really big release because they they put this up against fucking batman 1989 <laughs> the tim burton batman wow. and they expected it to make money because it was testing so well that apparently okay. they took it to test audiences and people were having a great time and they just kind of misjudged how it was going to play when it when it hit like sort of like mainstream theaters um, for people, even though you can tell that like that's the audience they're courting. They they did a tr- they cut up a trailer to make it look like it was like an Indiana Jones sequel to make sense with like the opening scene of, of the film, because it was also the year that Last Crusade came out. So they were okay. like, you know, they were like, we're trying to get the blockbuster audience to go and see Weird Al. We want a big movie and it didn't quite work out for them but i think that the aspiration or like the ambition is there regardless which kind of makes it which is why i think it's probably had a little bit of a life after the fact like you can see the effort on a display even if they didn't have all the money to pull it off exactly how they might have wanted to you know like the, the the big movie parodies that they're doing some of them aren't as uh I don't know, I guess like stylistically replicated in, in as convincing a way as some of the ones that I'll say in like stay tuned are, um, mm-hmm. just because they had a little bit of, you know, uh, more money going on there. You had, it's some, part of the uh, charm had, almost too, though, like to just see it. So like haphazardly put together. Oh Sometimes yeah, ab- absolutely. Like, like there, yeah. there's almost a gag. There's something funny about seeing the, like the, for example, like the opening Indiana Jones bit when he's walking through the jungle and it's cobbed, you know, cobwebbed caves. And hmm. it, you can tell that it's not quite, quite like a full set recreation of Indiana Jones movie. It was done with like miniatures and Al is like composited in and it almost looks kind of chintzy, but in like yeah. a charmingly chintzy kind of way. Yeah. 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 I think that a lot of the effects and stuff, I think, um, <clears throat> I think with this movie, you, you genuinely have to admire 
the range of like sets and mm -hmm. and parodies and like different TV shows that they've set up and mm -hmm. like different kinds of special effects. There's like claymation-y sort of stuff in there. There's models, there's green screening, there's you know, practical effects and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, one of, of the stuff. first things he does is, as Indiana Jones, he whips a dude's arm off and it's literally like a gory prop. And one of the best <laughs> parts of it is that technically it's the wrong arm that falls on the ground, but I didn't even care. I thought it was just crazy that they had a full, like, gory prop arm to use and everything. Like, you know, like they're 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 putting some of the the uh, the work into it for sure. Yeah. Well, and also it the, helps that that's revealed to also be a dream. So there is something that's kind of off about it anyway, because it is set up that a lot of what we are seeing and a lot of what we are going to see over the course of the film of all this bizarre TV programming that he comes up with is because this guy is just something of a, you know, this George Newman character that Weird Al is playing is like basically this man child who can't hold a job and spends his day daydreaming about himself being inside of the popular things that he likes or being some kind of hero or, you know, Visionary. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> and and so so that that's why you get all of these strange, more sort of like pathetic details making their way into these various things that, you know, should be handled in like kind of a cool way. Like when he's going up to the go get the uh, golden idol in Raiders of the Lost Ark and there's just like a bunch of signs being like, go the other way. The, like stop yeah. here and when he gets to the golden idol it's an academy award which is kind of a great joke <laughs> he's yeah. like we're we're getting out of here we're we're taking over the movie industry we're on the way yeah and he just <laughs> yeah, says really things even if it's small like you know he's he's doing the whole suspense sequence where he's got the bag of sand and he's gonna switch it and then he just goes ah fuck it and throws it over his shoulder and grabs it that kind of thing there's just all the these boulder like, chases him across the globe yeah i thought that was great and they're doing it with like a a green screen so so it's just very famous landmark pictures instead of anything that would even try to look real. And it just, yeah, it, it adds to the charm of it. And it's very funny. Oh, uh, you get a real sense with a lot of that stuff of, of him and him and uh, Levy writing, you know, jokes and going, and then it would be funny if, you know, <laughs> and then if we saw him running, running down the streets of Paris or whatever. But um, yeah, I think, I, I think like the a part of the deal with getting this film funded was uh, that Orion Pictures said they would fund it if uh, they did the entire thing for less than $5 million. That's um, not very much money <laughs> for what they're trying yeah, to do. <laughs> yeah, and they went out to, they went out to Tulsa, um, and they, which was apparently you'd get, you'd get tax breaks and stuff like that, and then it was also Yeah, they, they, they went there because a, one of the producers was Francis Ford Coppola's producer who had just produced The Outsiders, which they had also shot in Tulsa. So apparently Francis Ford Coppola was hanging out on this set, by the way. <laughs> here's, a here's a quote from uh, Gene Kirkwood, the producer, who said, I saw the fat video that Al did, uh, and I said, geez, we ought to make a movie with him. At the time, I was making a film called Ironweed with Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep, which was a very depressing movie set in Albany. I really needed a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's as good an uh, excuse uh, as I any. I just to have a good time. Yeah. The thing I learned recently was that uh, the, the fat video that he did parodying Michael Jackson's Bad. Uh, so you guys know how the, the film clip for Bad was directed by um, uh, Martin Scorsese. Yeah. And... Uh, they were they were getting ready to do the film clip for bad and for you know somehow uh, 
Weird Al found out that the like the set from the Martin Scorsese film clip was still there and they were about to tear it down and he went, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Can we come in and use that? And they said, yes. Uh, so oh, wow. they so shot just it got to, on the same set. They didn't have set. to do any work. They just used the same set. <laughs> yeah, although I was watching something recently where it, it might have been like a, a GQ video where Weird Al was like going through his, his biggest songs. And he also talked about the video for um, Smells Like Nirvana. And he mm. said, I think that was the one where we had the most stuff from the original thing where they, they booked the same soundstage. Uh, they had all the same cheerleaders from the Smells Like Teen Spirit video clip. Uh, and they got <laughs> the same janitor who was in the film clip as well. Wow. Uh, so basically everything in that video is the same stuff from the actual, uh, from the actual other one. But uh, that's just yeah, so that they, one uh, that I think that's the song I read that he, he kind of had a bad time after this because of the reception and because of the bad box office numbers. And I, he, he was in like he said he was in like a three year slump or something. I think it was the Nirvana song that got him back into the into the game again. <laughs> well, yeah, it was his next studio album that that did well. And um, mm -hmm. of course, Kurt Cobain was was the person who. Uh, very media shy and all that sort of stuff. But Weird Al, who always reaches out to people first and says, can I have your permission to do a parody of your song? Um, despite the fact that you, you don't need to mm -hmm. under American law, like, you know, parody and satire and stuff is all protected as First Amendment speech. But um, if he asks somebody and they, says, and they say, I don't want you to, he doesn't do it out of respect yeah. for the artist. And he asked uh, Kurt Cobain, who was like, fuck yes, now I know that I've made it. <laughs> uh, now that Weird Al wants to do a thing. That's awesome. But yeah, they, they did this movie for under $5 million. And I, I think, um, you know, the stuff I mean, I there's a lot of visual it. inventiveness for being as yeah. like cheaply made as it is. Cause like they never oh, yeah. miss an opportunity to find like a kind of ridiculous gag. Cause I, you know, I was just saying that like, you know, a lot of the issues that a lot of these movies have is that they, they need to have a plot and they need to have a very generic plot that you've seen a million times before in order yeah. to kind of justify hanging all of the ridiculousness on it. Yeah. And, and make it more digestible for you. And one of the interesting things about this is that, even during like the first scene when we get out of the Indiana Jones parody and we realize that, you know, he's just a, you know, a, a grill boy who's daydreaming at his job and burning all the fries. And, you know, he ends up getting fired from from Big Edna's like this would normally be a scene where the boss comes in and is like, hey, you fucking suck shit at your job. And, you know, right. like you're fucking fired, uh, you know, like that you would expect that to be how it's handled. And their version of handling that is that Big Edna walks into the room, <laughs> stares him down, cut to this big wide shot outside of Big Edna's where she picks them up like basically by their collars and hurls them into the air. And we get this like zoom out as we can just hear them flying through the sky and screaming. And then bam, <laughs> they land in the close up uh, to where the camera was, was, was headed to. And it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, it's a very cartoon moment. It's very silly, but it gets across the exact same idea that someone would have done in a more boring way in the same movie. Yeah, they would, they would have had the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air low angle of someone being thrown out of a doorway or whatever, or, or you yeah. know, maybe being tossed out of a window. But I, I think this... He this wants a little of, Looney Tunes gag in there. He, yeah, yeah, and this, this comes back to what you were saying about, like, uh, at the start of the movie, you get the Indiana Jones daydream sequence. 
And, you know, that's obviously very cartoony. All of the stop, go back, wrong way signs are very like Looney Tunes. Yeah. Um, the, the, the guy who is his guide who says, oh, we can't go in there. And he backs out of the doorway and is then just like hit by a train. <laughs> uh, yeah. Know, again, very, very like uh, very Zucker Brothers, Looney Tunes kind of sensibility. But then we get into the actual movie. And like you're saying, we, we have them being thrown you know, like 200 meters in the air by Big Edna. We yeah. have... Um, He's saying how much of a failure he is and telling his his uh, best friend uh, played by... Is it is it David Bowe who's playing Bob? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's he's telling him to uh, shoot him in, in the head and end his life because he, his life is so miserable and he says he won't do it because he owes him $5. <laughs> yeah, or like, um, like, like there's the scene where he goes to see his, um, his auntie and uncle and... And uh, an older lady like pinches George's cheek. Oh yeah, and, and it's like a fucking is... body horror moment out of society or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, full full like sort of six inch elastic pull out of his cheek as he's wincing. <laughs> yeah, and so I really appreciate that you you do get the yes he's doing his daydreaming uh, fantasy kind of stuff, but also they really quickly establish that there is absolutely like a a, a cartoon elastic logic taking place in what is supposed to be the reality in the movie as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that, yeah, I, like I, I think I, that I, really, I, Oh, go ahead. Oh, that, that just gives them that freedom to do the jokes, how and where they want. Like, I think mm. I really appreciate that about it because, you know, a type of movie, which I don't know, <laughs> it's an opinion. So I don't know if I'm wrong for holding it, but like, as I get older, I become convinced that like the funniest movies to me are the Zucker type um, naked gun, you know, loaded mm -hmm. weapon, hot shots type of <laughs> movies purely because or like a large part of the reason is the sheer density of jokes and visual comedy and how much of the yep. time you can look at something and say, huh, they must have spent several days putting together all of this stuff or like uh, a single throwaway joke in a two second shot. Yeah. You know? yep. And I, and I have this like real admiration for people going, yeah, like let's have this Looney Tunes style reality where anything can happen as long as it facilitates a joke taking place on screen. Yep. And, and yeah, and we'll put all this effort into it. Like the, you know, like uh, we're talking about a movie like this with a low budget, that scene of it'd be funny if when she pinched his cheek, you know, it pulled right out away from his face like it was made out of rubber. And then they would have had to go away and say, how the fuck are we going to do that? Yeah. Like, let's yeah. let's get this together. Let's get a special effects guy or whatever. But the range of special effects and, and comedic throwaway jokes and stuff, they're really, really varied. So you get that sense. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they'll just come I, out of nowhere. There'll be like that moment where he's having a fight with his roommate and being like, oh shit, like I'm late for dinner with my with my yeah. girlfriend and he'll be talking around the apartment with him and then all of a sudden you'll realize that, oh yeah, they established that they live right next to a karate school so that just so that you can get the gag 
And you can hear the karate school happening right next to their apartment while they're having their whole sort of domestic argument that they're happening. Uh, And you'll just have, you know, he'll be like, oh, my God, I'm late. What time is it? And then, bam, a karate fist will come through his apartment wall and there will be a watch on it for him to check the time and be like, oh, shit, I need to get out of here like right now. And it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, they have to establish a couple different details and visual details just to get to that one two second gag that really doesn't contribute a whole lot to the like again another filmmaker would have just had him look at the clock and been like oh shit i'm late but it's like no no no. they want to have a whole thing where a fucking fist comes through the wall (laughs) like you said that they establish that they live you know next door to a karate school during the conversation they've been having there's the sound effects of people thumping and bumping and key next door which is funny in and and of itself (laughs) and there's there's even a moment where you know he's he's making a disgusting treat to eat <laughs> yeah, he's making yeah. a, 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 a twinkie hot dog with aerosol yep. cheese <laughs> yeah which he then dips into a water cup of milk but while he's doing that there's like this thumping happening and stuff is falling off the wall of their apartment because of the yep. impacts that are happening on the other side so like you <laughs> said they've done all of this work just to establish the payoff for this like two second long joke that doesn't do anything further than establish like he's already established that he's late you know that's not it's not doing anything other than having the joke in there but given the low budget and the really wide variety of like special effects and visual gags and everything it really gives me that sense that i really enjoy in a movie which is that and it's part of the reason that I like B movies and I like, you know, old horror movies from the seventies and the eighties and stuff is that you often get this sense of a bunch of people who were just interested in doing this thing, got together with not that much money and just set about figuring out how to achieve all these different things they wanted to do with what they had access to, you know? Yeah. And like, it's which is funny because it's also all... kind of like the story of, the actual movie itself as well with all of these people just trying to keep this uh, channel 62 alive that his uh, I, I, I do like that he gets it just because his his uncle is like a very successful gambler and he just like yeah, wins yeah. it like randomly <laughs> and he's just like well I've been gifted this like failing just TV channel George. yeah just give it to our fucking fuck up you know nephew and you know turn him into the <laughs> station manager and see what he can do and this TV station you know like the open when he first walks into it it looks like a neon mad science lab like out of a Stuart gordon fucking movie yeah and the guy who runs it is like a, a guy named uh is it philo yeah i believe who so. at, who who's played by anthony geary and ends up being revealed to like by the end of the film like be an alien from outer space and <laughs> this whole fucking uh channel survives and i do like this idea too that the channel is like surviving on old reruns of like Mr. Ed and like Beverly Hillbillies and uh, their competition is channel eight run by the very shrewd RJ Fletcher played by uh, Kevin McCarthy in the film. It's pretty stacked cast kind of overall, honestly, like having uh, such an old guard guy like Kevin McCarthy, who's from both invasion of the body snatchers films, but the Sleazoids head should also recognize from a bunch of Joe Joe Dante films uh, as, as well, as well as the Halloween TV movie that we covered with Trevor Henderson, the midnight hour. He was in that film as well, but you also have one straight Mike, silly mode in it. 
Like he's like oh, yeah. screaming he's, and he's, he's just animated as Weird Al, if not more so, which is kind of funny. Like Weird Al he's obviously has his character angry. moments. But yeah, just like the way he yells at his sons that work for him and just any time that he's on screen, he's just actively trying to be the most evil piece of shit, just the slimiest dude. But he's really playing it up and it's it's a great performance. I thought it was They hilarious. also have some cartoon gags to reveal how much power he has. Like when uh, <laughs> Al enters the room and calls him, hey, RJ, and just everything in the room stops the buzzing immediately stops. yeah yeah and, and, take and, and it out of the film he, entirely it's great he's just the most like evil corporate overlord you could imagine happening just like looking for any reason to fire people out of like the like the glee of it and having them thrown yeah. out of his building and maniacally laughing and just buying everything and and controlling like, everything that's how He's they introduce uh, Michael Richards, I think. It's because he comes in as like the the dumb janitor. Yes. Seinfeld alumni. Yeah, Mr. Michael it's, Richards. It's, it's interesting too, because like who you, don't I, look up why he hasn't made a movie in <laughs> twenty years. He made a, a big old boo boo. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but it is it is cool to see his. Uh, but he's his, very like, funny in this. <laughs> yeah, his physical performance especially is insane. I mean, you definitely see the uh, you know all the Kramerisms. Um, in there like anytime he opens a door like it's you know it's very violent and quick and and he's always just like just kind of uh, uh, shaking his body around and just moving yeah, thrashing all the around yeah yeah really thrashing around it, it, he does feel like a, a physical comedy actor that doesn't care if he like hurts himself while he's doing a scene and I really do love that and they they utilize that throughout the entirety of of the movie um, oh, and, also, they, and, and, and they relish making him like a like a dim-witted kind of yeah. character who's just like big but also very and pure monologues. and you know tries really hard at his job and he he's you know when when they fire him from being a janitor he's really upset about it because he's like that's my childhood mop yeah. I've had that for so long and they've thrown me out like a bag of moldy tangerines <laughs> I, I thought that was such a uh, that was such a crazy uh, Kramer line um, yeah <laughs> it was you know that throw you away like a bag of moldy tangerines that's an extremely Kramer thing to say yeah absolutely but, uh, and also also like you know that's that moth was special to me. It was given to me on my eighth birthday. Like that's an extremely weird owl joke. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, spe- the, the specifics of it creates a whole eight. history for a character, right? Yeah, exactly. Like he was born to be this janitor kind of thing. <laughs> oh man. And he's just so passionate about it. It's just been his whole life. Yeah. It's a, it's a very funny gag. Very silly. I also loved seeing uh, Billy Barty in this film. Who's the, the yep. station cameraman playing noodles Macintosh, but like oh, yeah. he's a, He's a he's the very little guy who most people would probably recognize because he was kind of your go to guy in the 80s. If you wanted like a like a goblin or a dwarf character in a fantasy film like he's in legend, he's in the Dolph Lundgren He-Man. But I mean, like he's a legend who's been making movies since like the Universal Monster days. Like that guy was in Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, shit. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. Yep. That's crazy. Yeah, like so very funny seeing him uh, get like a little bit of, uh, you know, he he gets to play the cameraman, which turns into like an actual camera gag because he's a very small guy. So all of his camera angles as a news reporter are filmed at a very low angle shot that are not flattering to the news correspondent Pamela, played by uh, Fran Drescher in the film from Saturday Night Fever and and, and Spinal Tap. And uh, she's the girl who's trying to make her way up in the sort of male dominated industry where you have characters like, is it? Wait, no, it's it's the guy from uh, 
the Sopranos, David Provel, who plays uh, Richie from The Sopranos. Real, yeah, yeah, he he gets the fucking great line of, uh, "Hey, broads don't belong in broadcasting." You know, get <laughs> out of here. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I think, um, um, yeah. Just coming back to what you were saying earlier about like a lot of a lot of Al's jokes, like not being super mean spirited about the sort of weirdos of the world, you know, mm-hmm. and. And in this case, like I think similar thing with Billy Barty in here where you do get the kind of initial joke of it's funny. Like, yeah, it's it's not she funny can't see her cameraman because in the sea of cameramen, he's, you know, a couple feet shorter than the rest of them is like the origin, like the first joke of his character. But then it's like they make him a real character that you kind of latch onto and actually has a revenge arc in the movie for everyone <laughs> yeah. who picks on him. Yeah. And that he's and <laughs> yeah. that he's good at his job. And the same thing for Fran Drescher, where um, you know, I was I was reading some interviews with uh, Weird Al and, and Levy, and they were saying that uh, apparently they got a bit of flack for having Victoria Jackson and Fran Drescher in the movie as the sort of two of the more prominent female characters who both had like very nasal voices. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you would get flack for that, but uh, they <laughs> said no. We just we just thought it was funny to have uh, to have somebody with a voice like Fran Drescher. Who, who absolutely like dials it up for the TV oh, yeah. shows and movies and stuff that she's in. They said, oh, we just thought it would be a funny joke to have somebody who has a voice that is not like what you would expect a newscaster's voice to be like as a newscaster. Like yeah. that's yeah. it. And, and then by the end, well she's too, reporting she's... on the biggest story of the entire movie. And <laughs> yeah. And she doesn't yeah, have like and... the straightest delivery, which is nice because, you know, she's playing a news reporter, but she still kind of has that. Uh, I mean, her, her signature voice, but even just the way she delivers things, she's more um, like uh, she has moments, especially, I guess, near the end where she's kind of uh, like coming back at them a little bit, insulting them and kind of playfully going at them. Um, yeah, and she's, so, she's really charismatic. Like. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, but 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 the channel uh, that Weird Al has been made station manager of, it is on, you know, despite all of these eccentric characters who run it or maybe partially because, well, not partially because, because as we find out by the end, they actually put on a really great show together. But the reason uh, the channel is attracting all of these sort of eccentric characters, you might not be you would see as Channel 8 making their first choice for them. The the channel itself that they're running 62 uh, is on the uh, brink of uh, bankruptcy. So George is the one in charge of trying to come up with some new programming that might interest people. And at first it goes very, very wrong where he starts his own talk show starring him. Uh, the very first episode of which is with a local high school shop teacher showing him how to run a table saw. And the guy just table saws his own thumb off uh, right <laughs> on air in, in front of him. The cameraman who's eating a sandwich has to drop the sandwich from his mouth. And the guy who's performing is it is so like, good. yep. Can you believe this? Would you look at that? Just Boy, call my me Mr. Red. Butterfingers. So yeah. <laughs> As the blood uh, is squirting, like it's a full gore everywhere. gag of the blood fucking squirting into his face and everything like that. All over everybody's faces and clothes and everything. And that, that again, that to me is like an extremely weird owl sensibility. He is just playing the character in the scene who is horrified by what's happening. And, yes. uh, Weird Al and Emo Phillips, who is uh, the the comedian playing the the shop teacher, um, good friends. You know, they, I think they were both on Doctor Demento back in the day. And mm-hmm. Weird Al was like, "I just have to get my friend into this movie." He didn't have anything written specifically for him in mind, and they got to that scene and said, "We need someone in this scene," and he said, 
put my buddy in there. And apparently <laughs> that was the, that was out of out of all of the stuff. They said that the uh, the producers who, like you said earlier, were known for like the Godfather and Ironweed <laughs> and um, the Pope of Greenwich Village Village and stuff like that. They had not done comedy before and they said, well, we don't know anything about it. So we're just going to leave you alone. Um, and they were really, really light touch. Like they said, they never got notes from from the producers or the studio about, oh, we think it would be funnier if you did this, so you should change this to this. They basically just said, you guys wrote the script. We bought it as is. You are the, the, the you know, writers and stars and director of this thing. So you know what you're doing. And they left them alone. Apparently, one of the only interventions that they had um, was very early going in the piece where, uh, you know, because uh, Levy and, and Yankovic had written it together, they had this, you know, they're very specific ideas of, of the line readings of jokes and what made them funny and everything. So they were doing an early scene with Kevin McCarthy and they made him do like 15 takes of this thing because they were like, you know, he's great, but we just weren't, weren't quite getting this line reading that we had both imagined. And uh, they were very used to working in video because they had just done film clips together before this point, music videos before this point. Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, we were just totally used to being able to shoot everything on video and just watch it back and say, do it again, watch it back, do it again. Uh, but now, you know, they're shooting all this stuff on film and having it all printed to dailies and watching oh, it. Yeah. And so early would have been like, you're running through film guys. And this is not a uh, expensive movie. <laughs> yeah. So, so very early in the piece, uh, they, he had sort of been pulled aside and told, uh, Hey, you, uh, you can't do that. Like that's, <laughs> you are gonna you are gonna blow through all your money. You're gonna have to be a lot more judicious about which takes you choose and all that sort of thing. And and he said, you know, but in in their defense, he was like, that's that is still being a producer and thinking about the money, not telling us what's funny and what's not. You know. Yeah. But the only other thing was this particular scene with the thumb getting cut off, where they said you've got to take that out of the movie for us to get a PG rating. Otherwise, it's going to be PG-13. <laughs> and they said, no, no, we are like, I'm absolutely not cutting my friend out of the movie uh, <laughs> or taking the scene that I love out of the movie. Yep, it stays. Damn. See, we that's will, ride or die right there. The rating. That's beautiful. That's friendship. Right. It does feel like the, the whole <laughs> film does have this kind of purity of Weird Al and his silliness and ridiculousness, which I, which I really loved. Like at first... I, I liked what I was watching, um, but I wasn't entirely sure if he could sustain it for that long. And um, he just gets deeper and deeper into it. And it's just, it is very purely him. And I love that. Like another great gag is the, uh, I think it's a commercial right after the, um, when he cuts his finger off and it's the spatula commercial. Spatula and, city. And spatula city. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like the love of spatulas. And, and there's one great line where they're, they're doing this like romantic setting. And this is kind of where the direction is able to experiment a little bit because they have to capture that like uh, romantic commercial or, or a, um, a news interview or something like that. Um, and in this one, they have this like darkened room and instead of roses or chocolate, it's a spatula. And they're just like, what better way to say I love you? than a spatula and stuff like that. So it's just, it's silly, but it's just, uh, it's hilarious because they no, just yeah, like, like the, the tone Like that's so a legitimate well. pastiche. Like they are doing yeah. a good job of replicating what a really 
you know, sort of a silly local commercial might look like. Like, where do you go when you want brand name spatulas for a fraction of retail costs? Spatula City. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And I love, uh, I love all the shots in the commercial of like crowds of people flocking to the store. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's like the yeah. busiest store ever. <laughs> yeah, making, making a whole, the, the concept of a whole store that is uh, based around something that like, you only need one of for years <laughs> at a time. You know? Yeah. Uh, apparently, you buy the nine, is, uh, get the tenth for a penny. <laughs> yeah, the uh, tenth spatula. There's, there's a shot in that commercial of uh, of a billboard that yes. that that's sort of driving past and filming spatula. I City. loved this detail. I'm assuming you read the story about the the billboard. Yeah, that the 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 bill they they got that shot by just buying a billboard, yeah, and uh, and putting it up, and they just left it there. And um, apparently it eventually got taken down because local businesses were sick of people coming in and saying, hey, how do I get to Spatula City? Yeah, literally people <laughs> pulling off at the exit with the billboard and being like, do you guys know where the Spatula City is? And it I happened go. so frequently that all of the businesses actually complained and were like, OK, you guys need to take this billboard down because this is getting like rid That's ridiculous so and annoying. But but I will say like that also speaks to, you know, some of the level of effort being done into the pastiche that that billboard was left up for months and people thought it was a billboard for an actual place like there is some yeah. like in terms of like set work and you know like the amount of uh you know uh, pr production design effort that they're putting into this and this is also shot by cinematographer david lewis who we've believe it or not talked about before twice because we have talked about him on Night of the Demons, which I actually think is a good looking movie um, and I think it's well shot. And, you know, like that that fireplace dance in that film was was uh, we talked about a little bit when we uh, had uh, the host of the Soundtracker podcast on to to talk about mm -hmm. it. But he also has done and American. has had a very strange career afterward where he's done Leprechaun 3. He's done Leprechaun <laughs> 4 in space uh, and also Carrot Tops, chairman of the board. So not exactly <laughs> the credentials you would expect of someone, you know, to be shooting the most beautiful film that you've ever seen. But there is, again, just a lot of effort in, you know, I think I think some of it is in the detail of Weird Al's probably writing a little bit in like how well he, you know, goes it or how detailed he goes into researching, you know, like the musicians that he is replicating, like he is replicating yeah. their styles, he's replicating their instrumentation. He's, you know, and on some level, you can see him doing that in the design work of these various like ridiculous commercials like the one for spatula city there's a plots are us funeral service i love the uh crazy ernie car dealership guy who was like if you don't come down here in the next hour i'm gonna club this baby seal and just <laughs> like oh, there's a reveal of there's an actual seal just like kind of like flapping and in the background <laughs> and it's so funny too because once it cuts away you can still hear the commercial playing as they continue the scene and he says something like and you know i'll do it too because i'm crazy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It, I um, loved that gag. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think I think that's very reflective of of two things to me. One of which is that obviously Al himself is like a a diehard consumer of media. You know, yes, he's, he's somebody mm -hmm. who I think the very nature of what he does requires him to watch a shitload of TV and listen to a shitload of music, you know? Yeah, maybe and not like the kind of terrible, tacky live children's TV programming he tries to do with like the <laughs> Uncle Nutsy's Clubhouse or whatever, where the kids are spitting in his face and he's like feeding the clown dog treats. <laughs> Calling the kids the weasels. He's doing. <laughs> but, but also, I think um, the, the spot-on parodies of like the tone of TV commercials and a lot of that sort of stuff 
It's yes. um, I I think that generally speaking, doing successful parody requires you to have a genuine affection for the thing that you are parodying. Mm-hmm. You know, totally. Um, oh, that, yeah. you, that you are satirizing, like, and I I think the stuff in this uh, the stuff in this movie really reflects like someone who is a genuine television junkie. You know, he said, um, I I. I'm, I read the extensive 2015 oral history of, of uh, UHF on the AV Club. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of very interesting stuff in there. But Weird Al says in that, he says uh, that this was on the tail end of UHF even being a thing. But as a kid, that was where you went to see all the weird programming. You know, you had your UHF dial and you flipped it around and there was everything from PBS stations to Spanish speaking stations to low budget public stations to just out and out weirdness. It was a precursor to the internet. It was like if you wanted to do something unusual and bizarre, you'd go to UHF. So yeah, you get that, you get that real sense of he's not just sort of thinking, oh yeah, th- let's do something where, you know, we make fun of this idea that I've heard of. It's a, he was a kid and spent a bunch of time watching like weird late night shit on UHF on his TV. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the movie yeah. absolutely captures that kind of energy where his eventually his daydreaming fantasies like start taking over the previous boring programming as he's trying to conceive of what new programming could look like. And the first example of that is when the uh, he, he falls asleep watching the Beverly Hillbillies rerun that's on his TV. And it turns into this like blocky animated 80s MTV rendition of the Dire Straits's uh, Money for Nothing. And he straight up steals the entire music video aesthetic. He steals yeah. it, it's it's the most like plainly Weird Al has done this a million times before, but he's found a way to do it into his movie where he has actually successfully redone the song, redone the music video, but kept the lyrics uh, or 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 kept the uh, the story of the Beverly Hillbillies and basically made like a new intro for them. And, and it's really hilarious hearing like the Dire Straits voice be like swimming pools, movie stars. <laughs> We're going yeah. to Beverly Hills, you know, like this kind of stuff. It's 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 very ridiculous. And I, I love that that's just like this subconscious thing that hits him and he goes, wouldn't that be something crazy? And that ends up driving as, you know, Andrew was kind of putting it like very clearly. He kind of adored that as a kid. And he's like, what if that was like the driving force behind this, this station that's kind of failing? Because at this point in the film, he's very depressed. He's just like, he does, Weird Al does get to do one of the funniest things he does in the movie, which is when he goes up and tries to do the Uncle Nutsy's Clubhouse thing. And he's introducing <laughs> a uh, Roadrunner cartoon. And he's like, okay, right now, I'd like to show you one of my favorite cartoons. It's sad. It's the, the uh, sad, depressing story about a pathetic coyote who spends every waking moment of his life in the futile pursuit of a sadistic roadrunner who mocks and laughs at him and repeatedly uh, is repeatedly crushed and maimed. And I hope you all enjoy it. And he plays it it for all. Yeah. It's so funny that, Uh. you know, it's just, it, 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 and also, you know, it, it's it's true to the content of the thing, because as always, you know, he's doing he's being funny and he's doing a little he's being silly about it. But he is, you know, there's some truth to the uh, the content of the Roadrunner cartoon as he says that. Yeah. But it ends up having the side effect of 
as Jamie, I think, mentioned that uh, Stanley, mm-hmm. played by Michael Richards, uh, takes over the show briefly uh, as the uh, janitor and just walks on to set. And he's just like, yeah, why don't you go fucking do a show or whatever? And everyone just fucking loves him because of this, it. like this pure childish glee that, yes. that he kind of has where he's like, watch out, Mr. Coyote. Oh, no, that's so yeah. terrible. And then he, he really you know, believes he lo- in it, <laughs> you know, like he, and he, even he, yeah. him coming out, like the first physical thing that he does in front of the kids, like he screams at the kids, but they react in a very positive way. And then when he when he sees that positivity, he does this like crazy arm swing for like, like so <laughs> fast and just insane. <laughs> Um, but it's hilarious. Like he's just, he's nonstop every time he's on screen. He's just, it looks like he's sweating throughout all, like all day, just the, the way he moves. Yeah. And, and all the Richard children were previously that, uh, spitting on, uh, <laughs> yeah. on weird Al, right. And all these children are just like, we kind of love this guy. Who's like that cartoon reminds me of a dream I had last week where I was a bird with a candy bar for a head. And all of the people are just enraptured by him and his suspenders and by his very simple philosophy that life is like a mop. And yeah. sometimes life gets full of dirt and crud and, and bugs, but you know, you, 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 you can't give up. It out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These floors um, are dirty as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> oh man. Well, it's Mike, Michael Richards was saying that he, uh, that he would just, he was doing a lot of stuff, uh, as, as that character that he would just do as a kid, you know, like okay. running around pump, pumping his arms and shouting mm. the, the theme song to Bonanza really fast. I can but imagine he, also, he was a very hyper child. <laughs> yeah, but he also gave a lot of credit to um, to Weird Al for just facilitating whatever he wanted to do with the character. You know, he said um, he said that like he said, oh, I, I think we should get a model train. I feel like Stanley <laughs> would play with a model train on his show. And he said the next day they had some guy come in from the local model store and like set up a thing for me, which results in that like really distinctive shot of his mm-hmm. his head popping up out of uh, out of this little mountain with trains going around and fireworks going off. Right. Uh, you, you were talking about the cinematographer before, and I think some of the some of the really distinctive shots from the movie are like that or when they first come out of that Indiana Jones daydream at the start of the movie and you see that close up of George just dully staring directly into the camera. <laughs> um, and he, you know, and he said, um, he said, like, I saw a, I saw like a, a little Shriner car somewhere. And I said, Ooh, that'd be funny if Stanley came in on a Shriner car. And he said, the next day there one was in the studio, you know, <laughs> yeah. so he said, basically whatever I said I wanted to do. And he was the giving him the same freedom like, that he gives Stanley to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, because he was like, dude, you just you're 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 tapped into some sort of subconscious, you know, you know, purity that everyone is 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 really into. And I love when he goes up to him. and He's like, can you do that every day? And I love that Stanley's response is, wait a minute, you trying to get one over on me? Like, can I still be the janitor? And he's (laughs) like. Yeah, I, sure, I mean, man. I guess you, you know, sure. I, you know, I thought we were giving you a bit of a promotion, but you know, that's fine. But yeah, and also his show, they do just throw in some awesome, bizarre detail occasionally. Because one, one of the few other glimpses we get of his show, because after a while, we start getting into all the other various programming, which we're gonna have to talk about. Because there's some wonderful yeah, I've got programming one on deck. <laughs> of of shows that I would just, I would just watch if they were real. Um, but one of the best cutbacks to him is when there's just a the the kids there's the live studio kid audience is all having a great time and there's one kid uh digging in a pile of oatmeal 
and they were like, oh, Joel, you've just found the marble in the oatmeal. You're a lucky, <laughs> lucky little boy because you know why you get to drink from the fire hose. And they literally pull this kid up all the way to a fire truck where they literally turn the hose on and fucking shoot this kid across the, in the room face, with the fire like hose. face first. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> Oh my god. And there's never like in his show too, there's never really any like consequences for anything like that. They just have a great no. time. He like goes right back into the center of the camera and starts cheering and all the kids are going nuts after seeing that kid fly across the room. It's it's Dude. fucking great. I also like well, everyone starts- loves these bizarre programs, man. They can't take their eyes off them and they start making them the number one channel because it has this beautiful sense of of anarchy to it that, you know, clearly Weird Al loved when he was flipping through all of these channels. But yeah, Jamie, yeah. what was the show you had on deck? What what's well, What's the first one you're naming here? It's funny because it's it's kind of he starts to give you more consecutive programming for a little while, and then he switches on to this one guy that just has a ton of animals in his house. Oh, Rawls and, Wild and, Kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> and at first, you kind of think like it'd line up with the kids' show. It's like it'd be the animal show after the kids' show or something like that. And so he's he's showing everybody the the different animals and and whatever else. And then you start to see that he's kind of abusing the animals. Like he grabs an ant farm and he's just like, look at these guys. And he just starts violently shaking it. He's like, they're not going to like that. And then he says, um, he grabs a dog. Uh, and I can't exactly remember what we're, he says. We're teaching he's poodles do. to fly, right? Right. <laughs> and so he throws the dog out the fucking window, which reminded me of the um, the Stella short. Stella, actually, if you're yes. yeah, and, I do remember. And I'm already kind of jarred by that because it is one of the more um, darker jokes, I would say, in the in the movie. And they even go a step further where he does another With one the and they cut away to the exterior, to a pile yeah, of dogs <laughs> outside on the concrete, and it's just like. It was it was shocking, honestly, but I laughed so hard. And then they do this gag where um, they finally cut back to uh, Al and his partner and and they're <laughs> like shocked by it. And you think that they're programming just some insane people, but they're even shocked by it. And then they realize that no one hired him and he somehow got onto the station. <laughs> and it's just it's it's it was one of my favorite gags. And I absolutely yeah, also worth it. noting that actor played by uh, Trinidad Silva, mm-hmm. the uh, c- uh, comedian who was friends with uh, Weird Allen is also uh, given a uh, credit at the a dedication credit at the end of the film because he he passed shortly after shooting it. So this was one of the last yeah. things he did he's and he's very funny for the few seconds so he gets funny. on screen yeah he's a highlight for sure so uh also i gotta say one of the ones that i would just watch if it was real uh wheel of fish uh, <laughs> a, a game show run by his karate instructor neighbor where essentially they go up and they spin the wheel like wheel of fortune but it's a wheel of fish it's just a bunch of different fish and when they land on the fish the karate instructor tells them which type of fish it is and they get to take the fish home if they want it or they can take what's in the mystery box and the contestant is so you know she hears exactly what kind of fish she got it's a really nice fish and then they go but she goes i'm going for the mystery box and they open it up and there is nothing in there the guy's like absolutely nothing you got nothing (laughs) (laughs) and i was like I would just I that's a wonderful show. You it either just, get the fish or you get nothing. That's yeah, the show. That's the whole concept stupid. for it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Man. Uh, one of my favorites. I, I this one just popped up in my notes. Uh Conan the Librarian. 
Yes. Absolutely lost my mind. That has a, a great Gorgon too that I wasn't know expecting. The Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> the kid, there's a kid that comes up and he's like, "My books are a little late," and there's no response besides him just cutting him in half, splitting the kid in half, leaving oh him down the middle with a broadsword. Yeah. yeah, it's oh my god, and that's another kind of jarring one that I wasn't expecting. So I think that's probably why it's a, a highlight for me. Yeah, or, or or the slightly edgier one, Town Talk, which is his version of, I guess, like Dr. <laughs> Phil or Jerry Springer. It's like a mess uh, of yeah. a bunch of talk shows, yeah. Yeah, where where yeah, he's doing a bunch of different shows where he's just like, uh, what do you think about having sex with furniture? Or <laughs> we're, tonight we're getting inside the secret of Al Capone Al Capone's glove compartment. Roadmap says he just opens up the glove compartment and sees what's in there. He does an interview or with Satan at one point. He looks right um, at the camera as one of the promos, and he's just like, "We've got lesbian Nazi hookers abducted by UFOs and forced into weightless <laughs> programs." <laughs> <laughs> All next week on Town Talk, which. <laughs> Which again, if you if you go back through uh, oh, if you go back through Weird Al's music, there's um, there's a there's a song which is a parody of uh, the Bare Naked Ladies One Week, right? Uh, Canadian Canadian superstars, yes, and, of course, BNL, yep, <laughs> and and it's him it's him doing uh, like like all the things that he's seen on Jerry Springer that week you know so he's just like yes rattling through all of these different exactly like that kind of nazi hookers and <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff they're so all again, gonna get I into fights we have a clansman today he's fighting a nazi <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you so so again like going off of both that song and and this this sketch in this movie you really get that sense of like he's absolutely blown hours and hours and hours of his life away watching like Jerry Springer and Sally yeah. Jesse Raphael and, and a lot of just uh, Dr. Phil and straight trash, you know? It's interesting yeah. too. There's a couple gags that I've seen, you know, done a little differently in the more modern era, I guess. But like, for instance, uh, Gandhi 2, when they do the second Gandhi <laughs> film and he's an action star, the family yeah, guy actually. Like, like it's rips. a black exploitation action movie. It's like a yeah. funk soundtrack, and Gandhi is like punching through people's chests and having sex with models and fighting. Yeah, driving guns Ferraris and, and shit. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. it's, uh, and it's, it's honestly, Family Guy lifted the, almost the entire gag with uh, their like, Jesus or Passion of the Christ too. I don't know if you guys have ever watched Family Guy or seen that joke, but yep. it's literally the same joke where it's just Jesus Christ, but now he's an action star. He's in a Ferrari. He's getting the women. He's doing drugs, like all this stuff. And it's just funny to see that. I'm like, it's clearly ripped from from this. <laughs> and even some of the stuff, like um, just the idea, I guess, of like these really mean, hardened, almost mafia style. Uh, uh, news channels is kind of anchorman-ish. Anchorman, a bit yeah, too. yeah, you can even, see that. And two, uh, have you guys seen Freddy Got Fingered? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's you know that's obviously much more raunchy, but just that kind of you know joke after joke, even if it doesn't connect with something else, just very much reminded me. It, it had a very similar energy, I guess. The sort of like stream of consciousness of yeah. just like <laughs> just whoever was right. Now you're watching an up, it's five Green. seconds of an upside down yodeler. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. So oh, apparently, it was cool um, to see ap those things. Apparently, they just uh, they were in Tulsa and just put out like an open casting call. Um, oh, that's awesome. They were like, <laughs> who's got the weirdest shit for us? <laughs> so, so yeah, the the whole telethon section of the movie, again, the we're going to save the rec center wrapping up of the plot. 
Yeah, because um, because uh, Fletcher is trying to pressure his uncle into selling the station back to him now so that he can swallow it and turn into a parking lot. And, you know, they have to yeah. they have to fight back by selling stock to all the viewers in an effort to democratize and turn it into this like publicly owned uh, business and, 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 and raise money for it and everything. Because they're just like, come on, guys, this is a weird show for weird people. Everyone gets a chance to be a star. Yeah. We all love watching it. Like, clearly, the, the ratings are skyrocketing and doing better than corporate television. So let's get together. Let's and save this own TV station. Well, yep. it also, yeah, it makes sense in the context of like uh, the whole UHF thing in the first place of UHF is the place where any weirdo can have can have something, you know, have a piece yeah, of pie. Which is, which is, which is really nice because I do get the feeling that Weird Al believes that. And the fact totally. that he refused to get a PG rating to make sure that his weird friend got a five second cameo that doesn't matter to the plot at all. It's literally <laughs> him just cutting off his finger. Yeah. Um, and the fact that Weird Al committed to keeping that guy in the movie leads me to believe that this this is like the this is something he genuinely believes in that he would save the rec center or save the movie in order to get more weird funny guys on the air and give them star power <laughs> mm-hmm. so um so he says about the telethon section at the end there this is from the uh, av club oral history uh quote we did some casting in tulsa and some out of dallas which is not too far away we tried to get as much local talent as possible we did our big sort of telethon slash gong show uh, we had an open call where we had people come in and show their talent. Uh, you know, we had people we had people uh, standing on their head playing the banjo and all kinds of stuff. If it was bizarre and stupid enough, we shot them for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so all those things of like, you know, the the people with the big fake top hats over the top over their shoulders <laughs> and heads doing the belly dancing thing. The guy who's like, um, that's so awesome. The guy awesome. who's playing the banjo upside down and yodeling. These are all just, <laughs> they said, hey, have you got a weird talent? Get on down here. They did it. They did it like um, uh, David Letterman's stupid human tricks, um, which was where they would just get people into do some oddball talent that they had and say, that's huh. so awesome. Yeah, that's so great because it just that's serves sick. the exact purpose that it serves in in the movie. Like it's it's very it's very nice. It's very sweet to hear that, honestly. Yeah. And, and like you like, said, like you said, I, th- I think that it really does. I think it really does come across with a, a genuine affection for the subject matter of the movie, for the freaks and weirdos of the world, for getting a bunch of your weird friends together and making something fun. Um, a lot of the people who they talked to in that oral history all said like, of anything I have ever worked on, this was the most fun with the most collegiate set where there was no no ego and no you know mm. no sort of crosswords and conflicts or anything everybody there was just kind of hanging out and having fun and getting along and making this this fun thing together which i think is very believable looking at the finished product uh you know Absolutely. it really does seem like a low budget thing where people have just said you know what we've got several hundred jokes that we want to pack in here and we're just going to figure out how to do it. And, you know, Jay Levy was a, was a first-time feature director. So for him, he, he said, you know, this was... I had directed music videos before, but this was the first time I had ever directed actors delivering dialogue. You know? Yeah. So, so we're just working all this stuff out on the fly together. 
Yeah. Um, and you can definitely tell he's a little bit more comfortable when it gets into like the little mini set pieces of like he needs yeah. to copy a style for like a minute or something like yeah, that. Like he seems yeah. to have some he seems to have some fun like that like that. When it like for example, when th- this is where we're heading hitting the point where in order to the the other channel as Jamie was mentioning is getting the rival gangster uh <laughs> underlings of the uh channel 8 corporate uh 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 head office are kidnapping Stanley because they are like, we need to hold him hostage. He is too magnetic. He is too much of a star and no one will look <laughs> away from him. They're raising too much money and they, they, they blindfold him. They take him into the warehouse. They look like they're prepared to torture, torture him, but he doesn't really understand what's going on. He's just talking about how much he loves anchovy pizza. Um, but eventually in order to get him back, uh, Weird Al envisions it sort of like the opening of the uh, the Indiana Jones parody where he's like, I'm going to be an action star and I'm going to get mm-hmm. my fucking buddy back. And so even though Michael Richards is basically at, I think at that point in the in, in the set piece, he's fighting his way out of his own action scene yeah, because he, he spots his mop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. He, he, he sees his mop. old mop and yeah. he literally gets the gets like the 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 Super physical strength. energy to fucking rip through his shackles and go get his mop and start beating the shit out of them um and when uh weird al shows up it's in a full-on first blood part two rambo parody where he is in a muscle suit that's really horrible and wet and wrinkly that makes him like the chintziness of it is just adds to the joke that that makes him look like he is sylvester stallone in rambo and he's breaking his buddy out of the vietnam prison that he's in which is in the channel eight fucking like basement or whatever and he does yeah. so via these amazing first blood part two uh replicated effects of like like the giant we've talked about it like the explosive arrow kill that he gets <laughs> which is done in a full practical effect of the guy exploding on screen like but five feet away from but him. he yeah he's like a few feet away from him and somehow missing all of the shots that he's taking at him and every yeah. everything and uh he even starts doing the parts where stallone is like shooting at the computer and like in the in in first blood part two he literally just starts like it's just close-ups of his fucking muscles shooting the computer he's, he's like like, fuck your intelligence <laughs> as he yeah. takes everything down and in this case it's like weird al shooting at an entire horizon line of men who just instantly fall down and explode <laughs> and again completely miss him as well which is great and i also Wonderful. love the, the little like um i guess you could call it like a prop gag in a way where he approaches the helicopter and some guy is just selling rides for twenty dollars <laughs> and so he's yeah. like come on in. <laughs> come on take a helicopter ride guys yeah it's climaxing on that bit where he uh catches the bullet with his teeth in in his mouth and he even does the full like you you think he got shot in the head but he turns around and reveals the the bullet is like in between his teeth he starts chewing on it spits it back out as gunfire and explodes another (laughs) fucking dummy (laughs) yeah yeah it's ridiculous it's a it's a great sequence it's honestly a pretty good Stallone impression too. Of, and then uh, I, I, I'm your worst nightmare. Worst nightmare. Yeah, because I like yeah. that they cut. You almost think that they're replacing the the boring office scene uh, uh, escape with this, and it's just like a way to make it more exciting. But I actually like that after this excitement, they go right back to the boring office scene, and he's just himself again, and he's just kind yeah, of because like that's weak. how he was daydreaming it happening. He was imagining yeah. that he was going to go and break him out like that, but he actually needs all of his. Cr- 
karate buddies to uh, go there and 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 get them out, which turns into like a big climax where, you know, it is it is literally like the teen movie levels of like they're rolling up in the trucks and there's cheering and everyone is there. Like it's like a fucking parade and the telethon is going and they're like, we need two thousand left to go. And of course they uh there's this uh this this homeless man who appears throughout the movie who is just like the most sweet homeless man ever because i think the first time we see him he goes up to al and he asks for change Mm -hmm. and he gives him all of the change in his pocket and he takes a dollar worth of change and then actually gives him a dollar bill back because he was literally looking literally to just break a dollar he wasn't actually (laughs) asking for change which is like a nice little sort of like quirky reveal (laughs) <laughs> but it turns out at one point the head of like channel 62 or whatever uh fletcher he gives him uh, a, a coin earlier in the film and it turns out that the coin is a very rare coin worth thousands of dollars and the literally the last two thousand dollars come from this guy that he was nice to earlier in the movie and yeah. also they get the last two thousand dollars while fletcher is like braggadociously reveling about how he won and he's going to crush their subversive action and he's going to turn their TV channel into a laundromat and all of that. And it's like, while he's giving his like evil villain monologue in the background, the movie's not even paying attention to is when they actually just do the deal. Uh, yeah. Do the deal and get their, get their channel back and everything like that. That's so. what I like. I was wondering, um, cause when I was watching this finale, it, it's, it's actually pretty like stretched out and it ends up really working with the with the gags um but the 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 overall like you know they they get stanley back they have their big celebration it's looking like they're going to get the money um it it happens pretty quickly and then they just spend a lot of time humiliating fletcher which i thought was just a great touch <laughs> and his and his fail son <laughs> yeah and yeah. his fail yes all the gags are just now directly billy bardi gets him. to kick him into the mud and they yeah. uh, she uh, pamela gets to report on the fcc guy coming up to him and being like yeah we're taking your broadcasting license by the way and everyone's <laughs> yeah. just laughing at him there's also a giant parade of fireworks going off that were so big i honestly thought they were going to burn the studio down by accident <laughs> Yeah, you can real. see Fletcher gets kneeled in the balls for no reason by like an older the, lady. <laughs> there's a uh, there's there's you know the the big crowd of volunteers um, who are all there you know being the being the telephone crowd at the end who are all cheering and everything and when that fireworks display goes up their little meter of the the goal they're trying to hit. Uh, a bunch of fireworks go off and everybody's still like cheering like they're meant to be in the shot, but you can see everybody around it just starting to back away and clear a space <laughs> in, that, in that little shot. But yeah, like the, the movie just sort of wraps itself up again. Yeah, he romantically not, not, embraces Terry, his girlfriend, to the image from Gone with the Wind. She's now yep, proud of we, him. Yep, we, we end on him saying that, you know, like we've we've established that his his daydreaming and his fantasies have managed to save the day and make him a success and he will make his girlfriend a part of it from now on instead of forgetting all about her. The movie wraps up like uh, pretty nicely and without taking the overarching plot too seriously because as we've established, it was kind of, you know, they had to make a call early between is this movie literally going to be a sequence of sketches and, and pastiches and stuff like other movies that had come out before that, like the groove tube you know, um, R.I.P. Richard Belzer, uh, mm. some some movies like that, and uh, you know, Airplane and that sort of thing, where there isn't really a plot, so to speak, of just a just a right. series of jokes and sketches, and so they they genuinely considered doing that, and 
they they opted to say, look, you know, let's put this overarching plot in so there's something to tie it together and to make it, you know, a bit more a bit more broadly accessible to a larger audience than just a straight up sequence of sketches. Um, yeah, Weird Al is on record as saying he probably would have preferred it initially as as being just a sequence of sketches because making a movie and putting a plot in it was out of their comfort zone. But it is really interesting to see, you know, a movie which, which started uh, conceptually as here is this whole bunch of parodies and commercials and jokes and stuff that we want to film and put together. How do we tie that into a coherent form? Um, it's interesting to see sort of how they opted to do that and what the end result was, particularly because the next movie we're going to talk about is is very, very similarly conceived and structured, mm-hmm. I think. It's true. Yeah, but and I would say like with the next movie, the, the stuff where they are dealing with just the plotting, that's where they almost forgot about the gags where I find Weird Al, no matter what he's doing, even if it's very simple characterization yeah. or anything, he's trying to make you laugh at the same time. And I do think yeah. as much as I liked uh, uh, like uh, a lot of moments from Stay Tuned, which we'll talk about, that that is the big difference, I think, for me out of the two films there. Um, Weird Al, well, yeah, just, he's, yeah. he hones in on the comedy the entire time, no matter what he's doing. UHF, yeah. real, it has much more of that Zucker... Uh, sensibility of any time we're filming something we should just even if we're just doing exposition we can be getting a joke somewhere in in frame like there's there's Mm -hmm. a scene where um where uh his friend bob gets off the phone and is telling him that you know they're they're doing really well and they're getting advertisers and stuff like that and while they're talking al is just pulling grapes off a bunch and throwing them into his mouth (laughs) <laughs> like rapid rapid fire and he catches like four or five of them in a row while just delivering his expository dialogue and apparently that was just something that in the process of hanging out while they were shooting the movie and preparing and all that sort of stuff they they both both the scene where al uh sticks his fingers into bob's mouth and <laughs> stretches it up into a horrible rictus grin and the scene where he's throwing grapes into his mouth came about because they were just dicking around by themselves and <laughs> thought that that was funny and said, we've got to get this in the movie somewhere. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, like in, in the case of the grape thing, they were just like, yeah, we need to deliver these couple of lines. What if we were doing this funny thing while it happened and made and something else that I love make no mention of it. You know, yes, don't, <laughs> don't totally. actually refer to it in any way. You just get to be lightly stunned and amused by this thing that's happening over the course of 10 seconds and then the movie yeah, yeah it's, on, it's almost you know? like that bit in police story when uh jackie chan is just like trying to he's got like 10 phones in his hand answering at the, <laughs> yeah. at the police station he in order to take write down a note of someone who's calling he needs to like use his feet to like kick a pencil into the air and catch it in the air like it's just one of those things where it's just you know like th- yeah. th- that's not acknowledged as an incredibly athletic feat that it was that took 20 or 50 takes or whatever it was but it's just it's part of the fabric of the character and the reality and the cartoon existence that they've set up Mm -hmm. yeah i mean and and definitely if we're pivoting towards reductive rating round i think that is what gets this to the you know pretty solid four for me because again we we went over that al very exceptional rapid fire pastiche artist as a as a musician as someone who was really into caricatures and mad magazine and chintzy radio comedy and and i think that his energy almost like and and his you know very 
I think, loving sensibility and passion for putting weirdos on screen, as we've talked about in what sounds like he did in the production of the film as much as the story of the film. Mm-hmm. I think that that really elevates the normal issues that one might have with with sketch comedy, because I won't because, again, I won't say that the overarching plot that they conceived of is the most original thing. And it, and it is dealing a lot in intentionally so in uh very very broad strokes and 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 archetypes and everything Mm. um and this film does have some of those as a result i find the only qualm i ultimately have with the film is that every once in a while he gets into such a wacky amazing like rhythm and momentum to the, the the channel stuff that when we every once in a while he'll have to like pull out of it to go back into a oh here's the evil guy being evil so yeah. that you know this is sort of connected to something and so there was part of me that was like man i wish they didn't have to necessarily stop the momentum but in terms of doing that i think that he ended up doing it in a very gag heavy way and in a way that was definitely still um enter- entertaining to watch and yeah and, and as a pastiche artist like a lot of this stuff is very funny there's a lot of amazing shows that they come up with and commercials and music videos and they're very very elaborately staged and 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 designed and very funny even again conan the librarian is 30 seconds long and it made an impression immediately yes. of him being like the dewey decimal system and splitting a fucking kid in half with a <laughs> with a broadsword and you know so there's 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 something really bizarre and and magical about this little space that they've created here and it it is pure Weird Al. It's entirely his sensibility. It's his group of friends. And as we've kind of highlighted throughout the production history, like they very much genuinely created this environment and you can feel it like I remembered that three seconds of that upside down yodeler. And that's just some guy who they found at a casting call in Oklahoma that Weird Al thought was cool. (laughs) And now he's a movie star because of that. And that's kind of a beautiful thing. And I think that that's for me what really kind of elevates UHF above some of the other sketch comedy that I've seen. So solid four for me. I would uh, I'd also give it a four. I totally agree. I love its sense of community and fighting for the weirdos. I I always uh, love that. And anything that we watch. Um, and just uh, Weird Al's writing, I really, it, it was cool because it kind of opened him up for me a little bit because I did o- only know his commercial stuff more so. And I and I liked what he did and I respected him as, as an artist. Um, but I was just more used to the, I guess, kind of G-rated, very commercial stuff that he did. And and there is some some surprising edginess to this that I, that I didn't expect. So I, I thought that that was great. Um, I think uh, Levy or Levy, is definitely shines more when he's doing the set piece stuff. Um, there's still a couple moments that he gets with uh, when it's just like normal dialogue. Like I like the moment where um, he he walks into the office for the first time and Fran starts to just like just scream because she hasn't been promoted um, in two years because she just keeps getting new bosses and they just do this close up of his eyes just widened and scared because he just doesn't he doesn't know her or anything <laughs> like that um, it, or or when the uh, Weird Al and um, and uh, Stanley are are meeting for the first time and they're talking about like you know his his love of the mop and all of that and they're doing these like really intimate close ups of them i think that that stuff is really good um but yeah he definitely shines in the in the set pieces but i mean overall this thing is just it's gag after gag most of it is funny uh it's it's just i think it's the consistency and the it's it's, it really is hard to 
to stretch out and the low budget effort co- too i would say yeah. too just like, yeah. like like the fact that that spatula city billboard actually confused people <laughs> is like you know like they put work into that billboard it wasn't just and, and it's for a two second shot of a billboard in a fake commercial yeah and that <laughs> translates to everything that they do like everything yeah. you know it has that cheap sense to it a little bit but they still have the lighting that you'd be used to from a commercial like the spatula or um uh, or, or when they do like this, the the old uh, southern romantic silhouette at the very end of the movie where he does the dip kiss stuff like that I think is is great um, and so yeah I, I think this is awesome definitely highly recommend very funny uh, four out of five for you Andrew uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with you guys I feel very much the same I think it's um it's like I suppose the only stuff it's it's really missing out on for me is a really enjoyable movie is is any like uh, significant kind of depth or subtext or anything like that, which is mm-hmm. absolutely not a requirement of this kind of film. I just think if you're if you're talking about movies and saying, "Oh, I'm looking for something to kind of pour over and analyze and everything." Um, this isn't necessarily it, but it is definitely Even though we just talked about it for an hour and a half. Look, <laughs> yes. But uh, right. but yeah, it's 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 very uh like like I said, you can you can see like all of the sort of affection and and love for it up on the screen. You can see how much effort went into everything. You can see the sort of inventiveness in how they got all of those shots and and like costumes and special effects and pastiches together. You can see all that stuff. You get a real sense of the sense of humor of the of the director and the star. Um, and their writing, you know, I think um, for a for a first feature for both of them and something that was supposed to be a vehicle for Weird Al and his sense of humor, I think it does a, a really remarkable job of capturing and communicating that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like, like I said, just a very, very, very fun movie. Um, I think for this movie, it is much more about the message that like, uh, there is a place in the world for for people with big imaginations. There is a place in the world for people who love movies and TV shows and music. Democratize and, the TV stations, man. Yep, yep. And give of us, course, give, I guess, give us all a shot at stardom. Yeah, and I suppose, shit. yeah, in a way that really kind of um, you know presages the era of people being able to to become famous on. YouTube or TikTok or whatever because they're doing some very specific weird shit that a bunch of people <laughs> yeah. really like, you know? Yeah. Right it's definitely more positive about the idea of uh, what this uh, technology can do to to our, our brains and how we express ourselves in it than I will say the upcoming film we're about to be talking about is which uh, speaking which I think we are going to move along here so that's going to wrap it up for uh, UHF from 1989 we're going to be right back and we're going to be talking about Stay Tuned Don't miss this comedy from hell All right, we are back and we are talking Stay Tuned, the 1982 American fantasy comedy film directed by Peter Hyams and written by one Jim Genuine uh, and also Tom Parker. Uh, And this is our 
I believe our second time talking about Peter Hyams because we recently mm-hmm. talked about him uh, when we, uh, during uh, January, we were going through the career of Mr. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, mm. Enemies close to the bangers. Yeah, he did uh, Time Cop and one of our personal favorites, Sudden uh, Death, yes. uh, which was practically a remake of Die Hard with Van Damme and Powers Booth in a hockey arena. And God, that fucking crane shot from the ice uh, from the game hockey game playing played all the way into Van Damme hanging off the open rooftop of <sighs> the Pittsburgh uh, hockey arena. Just an unbelievable um, or watching shot. that and heli drop all the way from the roof as well onto the ice. It's just with Booth inside staring at him on the whole way down. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. man, it's good stuff. It's one, it's, go watch it's, it. It's wonderful. And of course, uh, Peter Hyams, father of John Hyams. Yes, uh, absolutely. Of, yeah, who who your amazing, audience will be very familiar with. Yes, the amazing direct-to-video Universal Soldier movies, which we actually covered just a few weeks ago at the very end of uh, January. So yeah, Peter Hyams, a very strange career where he started off, um, like by the time we hit this film, like in, in the 90s, in, in, in the 80s, he was kind of like a veteran of the sort of studio science fiction um, uh, film where, you know, he had done pretty cool like conspiracy thriller about the faked mission to Mars called uh, Capricorn one starring Elliot Gould and OJ Simpson as the astronauts <laughs> who are going to be killed over it uh, in the cover up. We'll definitely talk about it at some point because it has one of the most insanely dangerous looking helicopter chases I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, wow. Um, he also did uh, Outland, which is basically high noon in space with Sean Connery, has some awesome like post alien, dirty blue collar spaceship production design to it. And also 2010, the year we make contact, which is actually not a bad little sci fi procedural if you can uh, divorce it from <laughs> the uh, original 2001 A Space Odyssey, which it just is nothing like in, in comparison and definitely yeah. kind of ruined people's uh, attachment to it. But he also had done some sillier films like he did uh, Running Scared uh, with with Billy Crystal, uh, which has also has like a really cool uh, car chase on train tracks and like a multi-platform gunfight at in the uh, James R. Thompson Center in Chicago. So it's just like like Hyams had a very, very varied career, a very sturdy uh directorial um hand to him that we talked a lot about on on time cop and sun death like he's good with action he's good with analog effects he can do a little bit of comedy he can do a little bit of science fiction he can do a little bit of everything which is why i actually think he was probably a good pick for this uh this this film stay tuned because he has a whole bunch of different pastiches he needs to do and i actually think that he probably has a bit more knowledgeable on how to direct these pastiches than even jay uh levy was like for example, at some point in this film, they do like a full noir section, and it's probably closer to actually being like a noir stylization than it actually is for Jay Levy's, um, like uh, I would say, like his his Rambo, for example. Like they they yeah. do a pretty good job with the. Uh, like the conception and the writing of the pastiche itself, but like you know, the the, the camera work isn't as uh, confidently replicated in the same way. It's not as convincing right. of an action sequence as it is like clearly just a silly comedy sequence. Um, and he's doing the cinematography again too, I believe. Right? 
Yes, Peter Himes also his own yeah. cinematographer, which is one of the one of the few studio journeymen who was allowed to shoot his own movies entirely for the majority of his career, which is which is pretty amazing. So yeah, the dude yeah. in terms of visual sensibility, Peter Hyams has got it. But he was not the first pick um, for this film, which was originally titled Terror Vision, and I believe it was meant to be a full on like horror film, which is why we'll talk about. There's a little bit of stuff lost in translation in this film as a result of that. Sure, um, yeah, but it. it, it it was pitched as the evil dead meets Monty Python. <laughs> and it was initially right. set to be directed by Tim Burton. Uh, I imagine because of his, it, it just the expressive designs and sort of set work, especially in that era, like coming off of Edward Scissorhands or Beetlejuice or like Batman level, like exaggeration uh, in, in, in terms of some of the style. Um, and also that gives you a little bit of that darker sensibility they were probably looking for in, in, in the humor. Yeah. It'd be like um, a, he'd throw that Gothic romance at it a little bit, probably, which would have been interesting. Yeah. So, so, so the final result of this film is, uh, a, a kind of bizarre, uh, experience where <laughs> Peter Hyams was kind of dropped in because Tim Burton wanted to do Batman returns instead. Uh, I believe they also tried to get, um, cause this film also stars John Ritter. And I think that mm -hmm. they tried to get, uh, like Dan Aykroyd, and they also tried to get another really big actor that I can't remember his name for some reason right now, but they like the, the, so this movie ends up having a bit of a smaller reputation uh, because it did not get the caliber of talent they expected to get on it. But despite that, it's pretty well made for what it is, you know, yeah. like it's actually pretty fun. Like it is it, it is this weird mix of like every man schlubby 90s family comedy but what if that character found himself in like the running man where like yeah. <laughs> he needs to do this insanely uh, 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 deadly uh, game show essentially that gives them an, an excuse to do this sketch parody version of all these different television channels that this uh, character would be uh, would be watching. Yeah. And, and all the like the channels themselves very you know similar to UHF. Those are the stuff that I think is the big highlights of this movie. Uh, I would say that a lot of the, the characterization and plotting is a, is, is a lot more dull because they're not really trying to do as many gags. Um, they're not, they're not really trying to actively make you laugh during those scenes as much. Um, they have little, you know, little subtle jokes here and there that I guess would connect to the, the characters themselves, but it's just not, um, it doesn't have that laugh out loud gag factor, I guess, when it's just like people talking to each other. And it is one of those movies. And I guess you could say that this with UHF as well. But because there's so many sidetracks with all the gags, you get distracted by it. With this, it's very much like as soon as they give you the initial premise of the film, you know exactly how this thing is panning out for the next hour and a half. Um and oh yeah, so, dude. Yeah, like 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 straight up. You you we are introduced to uh, this uh, uh, Seattle plumbing salesman, Roy Nabel, played by uh, John Ritter, and he's going through a midlife crisis due to his lack of success and is receding into a couch potato. The opening voiceover is like, when describing my dad, these names come to mind: Bill Cosby. Alan Thicke, my dad, he watched all of them, anything <laughs> on TV all the time. They say the average American watches 7.5 hours of TV. Well, if that's true, two guys never watch and my dad took their time. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, like, uh, like, you've, uh, like you referred to earlier, Josh, I think this is much uh, 
much more openly like derisive of of people spending too much time watching TV. And yeah, this is like the couch potato craze is bad. This guy needs to pay attention to his family. And, you know, right off the bat, as Jamie was saying that, like, yeah, this is a guy who is ruining his family due to his TV addiction and the the end result of the series of games and events that he's going to be tested through is that he gets reunited with his family and he you know, doesn't watch TV anymore, which is pretty much exactly what, what happens, Yeah, which is why yeah. I'm curious about the it's, horror version of this, because the yeah. horror version of this, I imagine is probably the more interesting movie. Like this movie directed by yeah. Tim Burton or this movie directed even by like a Joe Dante, who I thought about the burbs the first time that I watched this, because it has a little bit of that, like domestic comedy kind of every man thing. But what if that yeah. guy found himself in a surreal experience where he thought his neighbors were cannibals this definitely has some of that darkness still in there i was just surprised about how much they turned it into kind of like a generic like back to the future family adventure pastiche kind of light thing that they opted a lot of the time yeah i i I almost thought about like honey i shrunk the kids yeah (laughs) same thing i actually i had in my notes that um that it it's very reminiscent to me of honey i shrunk the kids which also has like a a sort of um you know, hand-drawn, animated uh, title card sequence. And, yes. And was like, it was directed by, like, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was directed by Joe Johnson and written by Stuart Gordon and Brian Usner of all of the, like, reanimator oh, wow. and from Beyond movies. I that, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so, so they, so it has, like, that movie has a really similar thing where it's got, like, all these practical effects, a sort of interesting kind of fantasy element to it which often borders on being quite dark, but it, but it is at the end of the day, like a family movie. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah, I think there's, uh, there's, there's interesting comparisons to be made between the two of them, but I agree. It's a very, very similar feeling to that sort of movie. And also like you're saying about the horror version of this, I think, um, I think what comes across a lot more in this movie than in UHF UHF to me is very much like like it it comes across very much as it was I think it was intended it was it was co-written by Weird Al and Jay Levy and then Al starred in it and Levy directed it so it meant that of everybody at the sort of that top you know triangle that pyramid of creatives at the top of the production were basically mm. all on the same page before they started making the movie. And that was noted by people who participated in it. They said, normally, you know, you've got, you've got the actor who, who doesn't understand, you know, what somebody else is trying to achieve and the director saying, oh, well, I want to change this bit of the writing and the writers pushing back about that. But in this case, you had everybody aligned on the same thing. Whereas this movie, you get much more of a kind of shaky feel of what mm. exactly was the tone that you were trying to achieve here because it's quite like, it's sort of, you can see the outline of the darker movie Mm -hmm. where it, where, you know, there there are literally satanic forces pitting this guy and his wife in like a, a a battle for their survival. Yeah. The the screenwriters compared it to evil dead. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and then a lot of the gags are like them setting up in death traps and stuff like that. It's just that you don't necessarily usually see any of the gore or anything, but the, the kind of, you can, you, you can tell that Warner wanted a more commercial product product and they brought in like a journeyman. 
a yeah. guy who would like give them the version that they were but looking for, which is not to say that Peter Hyams isn't talented and doesn't still shoot it pretty well. But like, you know, he was clearly brought in because they couldn't get the talent that they wanted. And they were like, give us, you know, the like PG version of, of this is yeah. kind of what it feels like. Cause they kind of set up like some R rated situations and then they always just kind of drop it before it can really get there. Yeah, having the uh, having the kids in it as well definitely gave me more of the kind of "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids" vibe, where of like, yeah, yeah. which we're trying. I mean, to every time it comes to the kids it, who don't get like any gags, and for the most part are just there to be like, "Oh, our parents are trapped in the TV. We need to get them out." And it also yeah. half their scenes are like just the one sibling trying to convince the other sibling that that's what happened. There's like three of <laughs> those I, scenes. It's it's strange yeah, that it keeps like, repeating. Yeah. And it's weird too because they do use this later as like a practical thing for them to get uh, to contact the the family. But there's this kind of personality about the the brother where he can he knows how to like mess with the with the uh, broadcasting waves so that he can go over the neighborhood's television and you know make messages and stuff so they introduced that but i was hoping that they'd kind of incorporate that a little more than just like the beginning and then the end where they're trying to communicate with them because the stuff with the kids is very repetitive and the tone isn't like very fun or funny. It's very just kind of typical. The, the sister's trying yeah. to get a party going because the parents are gone. The brother is kind of this like nerdy guy. So he's trying to convince the sister that the parents are in the television. And it just, it, whenever it goes to them, it's a very repetitive process. So it gets well, a little well, uh, I think, dull. Yeah, he's also introduced trying to sell uh, porno of his sister kissing a boy. Uh, on on the tv airwaves just an interesting way to introduce that character i feel like i forgot about that detail it's kind of a little shit it's it's kind of a mirror image of the honey i shrunk the kids plot where in honey i shrunk the kids uh they they get um which i would note is is from before this movie that's from 89 and in oh, that wow. movie, okay, yeah, so they are just straight up riffing on Honey I Shrunk the Kids, then. Well, well, yeah, because because in that movie, the the father's invention accidentally beams the children into, uh, accidentally makes them tiny, and mm. they get thrown out into the yard, and they're having this perilous journey back to back to the house, um, full of cool practical effects and stuff. And then, um, and the parents are the ones who realize that the children are in peril and are trying to find them and figure out how to bring them back to, to full size and everything. And in this one, you have the parents being beamed into the, the TV where the they satellite are then, dish, which by yeah. the way, in a cool visual effect where they are literally sucked into the satellite dish. Cause again, yeah. Peter Iams, he's pretty good at the analog effects. Like the overall like competency of like visually of the film, I thought was like perfectly perfectly good like even the yeah. opening stuff where it like begins as a horror film and it's the old couple settling in for a night of watching the tube with their cartoonishly huge bowl of buttered popcorn <laughs> and you just have like a dark cloaked man ring the doorbell you you've been personally selected to receive an irresistible offer and then like you know suddenly the backyard's lighting up with flashes of electricity the wife is screaming mm -hmm. you know we're you're, you're immediately getting in there. There is an attempt at trying to do some horror tone even if it is made sort of like silly and kind of like family friendly yeah. yeah that part is much more reminiscent of of the burbs 
um, like you were describing before. Yeah, that was why I was and, thinking of Joe Dante. I was totally. like, he could have made this movie, I feel like. Well, and, and so then we have this totally flipped dynamic of the parents are beamed into the, the TV where they then need to um, like run this gauntlet of perilous TV shows hoping to come yeah. out the other And also and a TV sold to them by the devil, though, which is one of yeah. the funniest scenes in the film because it's like this guy is obviously the devil who is selling <laughs> you this TV. Because you're because you're, you're you're just straight up like, you know, like you have the guy who's addicted to the TV. He lives with his wife, Helen, played by Pam Dauber, and she's an ad executive for a vitamin uh, uh, products who basically feels neglected by the fact that all he does is watch classic movies and, and basketball. And you can't even turn the game off for a minute to discuss their their life together or go on a weekend vacation or, or have sex. And she's at one point she breaks his TV by throwing an object into it. And then we cut to a shot of the smashed hole in the center of the TV with a minimum mini portable TV now <laughs> on top of it that he's put there so he can keep watching TV despite the fact that she has smashed it. And when this door to door figure arrives for him, it's this man named Spike played by Jeffrey Jones, incredible character actor, Amadeus, Ferris Bueller, Beetlejuice, Edward. Speaking of Tim Burton, he was clearly involved in this when it was originally meant to be a Tim Burton movie. Yeah. Don't, um, don't look yeah. up. Don't look up why he hasn't been in many movies either. <laughs> don't look yeah. up any of these guys ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jeffrey Jones playing um, uh, emissary of Satan actually kind of works out a little bit. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but it's yep. so funny when he shows up, like he just has a bad vibe and like the devilish smirks that he's making. And he's just straight up like, I'm going to offer you a new satellite dish. It, the, it's here's a universal remote. It has 666 channels of heart pounding, <laughs> skull blasting entertainment. There's unlimited entertainment. 666 channels. Continue. <laughs> yes. Snatched from the ether and slammed into your brand new 44 inch 900 line resolution three-way expanded matrix Dolby stereo TV. <laughs> you know, some people would give their souls, figuratively speaking, for a TV <laughs> like this. <laughs> escape, escape. Maniacally from laughing f- while he drives into the fucking earth as he sells him, finishes selling him the TV. <laughs> into the oh, dead and, end, and a, yeah. And again, you know, we get we get more of a direct thing of what this movie's trying to say to us, where he says, uh, you know, hands in the remote saying, escape from all your failures and woe. Uh, yes you know, by by disappearing into this and again i think we could probably go back and note that like this this is again a window into a very different time in content consumption in fact we didn't used to call it content you know we used to call mm-hmm. it entertainment before uh before this current era of even more corporatized endless <laughs> pipelines of stuff being pumped into your face but like yeah. this this idea at this point of like we're going to give you hundreds of cable channels and it's on 24 hours a day and you can sit in front of your TV at that point in history that was like as much content as you could possibly ingest you know you could if you could stay conscious you could watch TV for 24 hours straight <laughs> Right. And it was like the, the prime era as well of being able to get that entertainment in your home. You didn't have to leave to go and watch a movie like that VCRs, you know, you could you could play a movie in your home without film or a projector. You could watch game shows, you could watch movies, you could watch talk shows and sports. And I am at one and, point. He's just watching the Maltese Falcon. Great film. Yep. Yeah, you can watch watch movies, watch watch sitcoms. You got all these different things. Um, and it kind of reflects that uh, it reflects part of the sentiment of UHF as well, which is like all of the kind of weird stuff you see flipping around late at night on on strange mm-hmm. channels. But even yeah. back then, like this is something that I've noted watching some movies from the 70s and 80s lately is that 
it's very interesting to see uh, like like either conceptions at the time of of like their current time or of their idea of the future of what content mm-hmm. consumption was going to be like. Because if you watch, you know, uh, if you watch something like 2001, you've got the, the astronauts, they're there on the shuttle and they're like watching the news on these, on these big tablets, basically. They effectively look oh, yeah. like, they look like an iPad, you know, with, with sort of yeah, full, and, full and, and space travel has been corporatized and there's like advertisements yep. on it and, you know, like, <laughs> yep. But, I, w- I would note that in that case, they're both watching a live broadcast of something in space on their iPad type device. Or if you watch mm-hmm. something like Back to the Future 2, you know, you have the scene where Marty Jr. comes in and he, and he turns on the giant TV and he says, give me channels 12, 24, 42, 55. Like, and, he, and he rattles off all these things so that he's watching like eight or 16 channels at the same time or something. And so mm-hmm. the conception was ways that you could be consuming more content but nobody was nobody was guessing that like we would at a point completely move away from the conception of like broadcasting where you would be at the whim of somebody else putting something on that was playing and you could tune into it when it was playing nobody sort of guessed that we would move away to yeah broadcast kind of being gone and instead viewers get to choose what they want to watch and when 100 percent of the time 24 hours a day from like myriad yeah, different it, sources in this movie's uh conception of what like crazy futuristic uh tv enjoyment it's like you have 600 channels and of just the most bizarre content which is what leads it into similarly to uhf where they they came up with a premise to just have bizarre parodies of television shows that they could just sort of channel flip, flip through. And so this one dates it to the, you know, like the devil is making all of these TV programs as sort of, uh, uh, you know, elaborate ways of, uh, harvesting souls as he sees it. And spike, the guy who sells yeah. the TV operates in his control room and, you know, he's like, well, this is a way to very hilariously take life and give them to the devil in like extravagant and kind of ironic ways. And we bring them down as candidates. They are forced to endure hellavision and they live inside these horror parodies of things that they might flip through the channels as if they're almost like obstacle courses. Like at one point we see the neighbors who get kidnapped in the opening scene. Uh, they're told that they're on like a Tokyo vacation show and then they just get squished by Godzilla. And then bam, <laughs> now their souls are owned by the devil. And and that's that. And one of my favorite bits about that is that they're like, and as part of the Geneva Convention in the War for Souls, we have to offer them a chance to survive for 24 <laughs> hours. So if they can make it through 24 hours of the obstacle courses of the various television shows, then they get to go home. But if they don't, they get killed. They're the property of uh, uh, Satan. And there's this part, too, where like Eugene uh, Levy is one of the guys who works under. He's one of Spike's underlings who works in the control room. And he's w- walking a new guy through the room, uh, this USC film uh, st- uh, st- like grad. And he's like, you're joining the production team and i love that he box at the idea of uh that they need subtext to spike's product because he's like your your <laughs> version of harvesting souls is so crass and commercial we should have more you know uh, flavor more storytelling <laughs> we should have more quality to it yeah and and which i just love that spike's response is 
you know, we make our show for one audience member and he has an enormous appetite for misfortune. <laughs> and so we're just going to make the most hilarious possible over the top deaths that these characters are, uh, you know, going to be put through as they are, you know, programmed into the various shows and the excuses for all these various shows, which we'll get into a couple of them. But there's like some of the opening ones are like three men in Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> yeah, 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 obviously a sitcom I, parody I where all the men are taking care of fucking Rose. They actually do a pretty good job of recreating the little cradle too. I knew exactly what it was the first time I watched it. I was like, "That's Rosemary's Baby right there." Uh, sadistic the, hidden videos, a prank show where they just tell a woman that her husband died and she cries <laughs> on screen. And they're like, "No, look, there's a camera there. There's a camera there." Yeah, that's, that's well, autopsies of the rich and famous. Find out how James Dean really died while they're like whipping out surgical tools. I, and I love the <laughs> idea too that because they. They have that piece of dialogue where they're like, we had to kind of make, you know, they call it through the Geneva Convention, this kind of thing between heaven and hell that they had to make a deal. I love the idea that God was like, okay, you can do that. That's fine. As long as we twenty four hours the though. game, yeah. Get, yeah, you can do all the the fantastical torture that you'd like. As long as you give them a chance to get back to heaven or earth, it's. I think that that's hilarious. I don't even. He know just if they he meant might that, have but. liked the programming. Okay, Silencer yeah. of the Lambs. Yeah, the, the 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 Exorcist or whatever it is. Or it's yeah. like God's got Come on, everyone with me. Just Satan. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I think that this like like knowing about the the horror roots of the movie kind of explains some of this stuff a little more clearly. But also, I think the the movie is uh, giving you a much a much clearer message. It's much it's much more sort of streamlined as a plot and yeah. as the message <laughs> it's giving you, which is like uh, number one by. Uh, if if you are a person who spends all of your time being a couch potato and not maintaining your relationships and in your family and not ever trying for anything and only ever being a, a viewer and never a participant in any aspect of your life, you are literally throwing your life away, I think is the first unsubtle message of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And also also that, uh, that it is, um, you know, literally hell to be trapped in television forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is made with a lot less affection for, you know, like creating this kind of entertainment and, yeah. you know, being someone like 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 that says you can tell watching uh, UHF that like Weird Al is someone who loved channel flipping and seeing bizarre low budget things and seeing weirdos and freaks that he's never seen before and, you know, wanting to give them a home. And this definitely has a more of an air of, uh, you know, distance and sort of cynicism about it and not entirely unfair. Violent. Like there is there is like a, you know, sort of a, a, a corporate like the, the idea of the devil as like this corporate infrastructure control room is not also, you know, like completely uh, unfair as a, as a critique or anything either. But it's just one of those things where it does make it a little bit less fun, I guess, yeah. to go through. Like there's there's less glee to it, even if some of the pastiches are, you know, genuinely funny and effective. Like there's some good jokes, like the the whole exercise uh, exercisist or whatever, where it's like literally <laughs> they're doing jazzercise, but they're having the ladies spin their heads and vomit and shit like that. Like that's a, yeah. that's a it's a funny joke for the second that it's there. But it yeah. just is like it does feel counterintuitive to the to the actual narrative being proposed, which is that you shouldn't want to get sucked into all of this bizarreness and randomness, even though you actually do have fun inside of, you know, the uh, the thing that they're being sucked into, which is hell, as we've said. Yeah. <laughs> well, like you said, though, um, I, I think that, uh, yeah, this this one is is much more 
shop and pointed at the actual uh, at the actual programs that they are satirizing. Like, I, I think yeah. that um, UHF had much more of either the kind of poking fun at something in an affectionate way or things like Conan the Librarian, which would have literally been... Now, that'd be funny. Like, like just somebody yeah. saying, Conan the Librarian, Conan the Librarian. Wouldn't it be funny if you made a thing where Conan was the librarian? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, knew that that, like, the, that gag works for five seconds and then moves on. I do find that some of these, although I'll find the, the joke or the initial program funny, they'll stay there a little bit too long and, and not really know how to build the joke from it. Where I, f- I find Weird Al is like, he knows exactly how much you need to juice this thing, whether it be seven seconds of a scene or a full minute to, to give the gag. Like He just had, yeah. I think, a better understanding of pacing when it came to the jokes and yeah despite the fact that this is like 82 minutes long like this thing moves yeah it feels Tech- it feels longer than uhf even though it's like it's only 15 minute difference but i will say i like i feel the time more on this one and it's just because of their lack of understanding of pacing of jokes i feel like is a is a big part of it anyway well again yeah, is, it, is that, it a comedy movie is it a horror movie like uh, yeah I, exactly I, I think things things like uh what you were what you were mentioning josh of like um sadistic home videos like that to me as a as a parody or a satire or whatever that there are a number of ones like that where i think that they are very clearly and openly like deriding the very concept of that mm-hmm. that yeah, particular like a, like format. A prank like, reality show like yeah that, they're yeah. saying like like with that one to me they're, they're just they're saying you know so like prank shows in general are just they are just lying to people already. Yeah. Mean spirited lying to people and then laughing when they believe you, you know, like that. Yeah. It is kind of that, <laughs> that thing. Kind that's of like stuff. Once the person realizes that it's entertainment, they should just be the, the person that's pranking them should just be forgiven. That kind of thing. Cause I think even in the, in that program where they're like the sadistic home videos and they say that her husband dies after they reveal the cameras, she's like, Oh, that's a funny joke. Like that's okay. Which is kind of funny oh, in itself. But I, yeah, it does feel like they're kind yeah. of making a comment. See, I, that's just it. Is I feel like that criticism would hit harder if it like committed to being a horror film. But because it's sure, like such yeah. a family comedy and it's so kind of wacky, and these characters are just kind of having fun in these universes a little bit, even though there is like you know some some tension to the set pieces. Like again, Hyams mm-hmm. is a you know a perfectly uh, reliable filmmaker, and like UHF, there is a lot of at least money on the line here in terms of like constructing all of these various things, like the, with the sets and the costuming and lighting and camera work like Hyams is honestly probably even more skillful at replicating the various film styles that are actually in in here and like there's there's some great programming that they do like they're you know like the one of the first ones is the northern overexposure which is a show about a new yorker who goes to alaska complains a bunch and then freezes to death which is obviously like a dark gag and it turns into like a winter survivalist show where the two parents start like looking for a window into the next channel because they don't want to spend all their time in this horrible reality and they're just being like attacked by wolves but then they end up getting into the next window and it takes them into like a full-blown literally chuck jones animated set piece that is actually really good where they're just like two house mice eating Mm -hmm. donuts and they're being hunted by an evil robot cat trying to cook them in a toaster and like shoot them with a gun while they flee in an rc car and like it kind of feels like it is just like the tone that they want to capture and everything else maybe like 
Because, well, I guess it gets confused, like we've been saying, just with the horror and comedy aspect that they were kind of confused on. Mm -hmm. But this one has such a, like, this sequence has such an energy to it that the rest of them just don't carry on the entire time. This this whole well, and sequence the, and the is pastiche good. is just perfect. Yeah. Like it, oh, it yeah, just yeah. is indistinguishable from a Chuck Jones like Looney Tune short. Yeah. So, like it just it, it operates much in the same way. It looks the same. It feels the same. The action works the same. They even do the That's, orchestra stuff, like the music changes and everything like that. The way that a Looney Tunes episode would. Um, so that's pretty cool too. So this scene yeah. this scene was supervised by Chuck Jones. Hell awesome. yeah! Um, so you can tell. Yeah. Well, there's so there's there's a bit where um, there's a bit in this scene, like you said, they're being being chased by the uh, by the robotic cat mouse catcher, <laughs> um, the the robotic mouse destroyer, and it's kind of like I think I think that as far as the sort of plot of the film goes, like we said, the film very quickly drops into its plot of this television addict and his unhappy wife have been sold a satanic uh, satellite dish. They get sucked in. They have to survive twenty four hours or be be killed. You know. Yeah, they're and just literally hopping channel to channel, story to story, yeah. trying to survive the various uh, you know uh, obstacle course uh, courses set for them. And every parody is meant to be like a slightly more violent and hellish version, like the Wayne's World parody, for example, <laughs> Dwayne's Dwayne's Underworld, Excrement. where they are. The, Something, yeah, devil uh, worshiping zombies. <laughs> well, something that I do appreciate, uh, like once we get into that chunk of the film, and to its credit, I think they move pretty quickly into the main premise of the film, um, mm -hmm. which is they are in this channel hopping reality. Like you said before, Jamie, I absolutely agree that it loses steam every time we step out to the kids going, wait a minute. Um, yeah. And they is do that it really three or four there? times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if they if the, if they had to just cut that whole subplot out and the whole thing was just them channel hopping for the remainder of the movie, I think it yeah, would have been it'd stronger. Be a stronger movie for sure. O obviously, that would you know increase your increase your costs and all that sort of stuff. But you know they they move through this stuff pretty swiftly and they're generally speaking kind of getting their asses kicked or like in the very first game show that they drop into, you can't win. Um, you know, <laughs> they can only win by his wife finding out worse things about him, you know? like yeah. so, yes. so he's kind of having a bad outcome all the you way through. You can't win! <laughs> <laughs> Until we get to the cartoon sequence, and I feel like this, this bit's kind of crucial because, you know, like we said, they have this, mouse, they have this uh, robotic mouse catcher they're trying to get away from, and he very quickly like fills out a, a form or a coupon or something, slams it into an envelope and, and mails it away. And moments later, again, just like in a Looney Tunes cartoon, there's a, a, a doorbell and there's a delivery at the door, which is a big robotic dog, uh, which destroys the cat. And as he's writing yeah. on that thing and putting it in the envelope, he picks up the envelope and lip, licks it, and the stamp is a portrait of Chuck Jones. Um, <laughs> yep, in that scene. And but I think that that, as far as the plot goes, this this moment's kind of crucial because he's been very you know passively uh, complaining and getting his ass kicked through the movie. But this is the moment that he realizes that he has to participate in the reality of the show that he's in. Yes. I also like too that there is a there is a thing that they I feel like they could have developed a little bit more, which is that he also becomes a pretty good 
participant because of his knowledge of the yeah, things that he watches. Yeah. He he knows the rules because he's the one who figures out that, yeah, what would someone, what would a cartoon mouse do in a show that I was watching? He would right. mail a letter and get a dog. And, or when he gets into the Maltese Falcon esque, like noir detective uh, element where he's like delivering voiceover, where he's like Roy Nable, private dick. Well, better than being a public dick. And then yeah. he, you know, he's going after his wife there who he looks at a newspaper. It's like classy dame vanishes. So, you know, his wife is the classy yeah. dame. And then he gets into like a Scarface level, like Tommy gun <laughs> shootout, in, you know, while trying to. And, and it's just he he knows the behaviors of the various characters that he's supposed to be in these shows and he uses them to actually excel his way through so because he's like the best couch potato ever is why he's like the one couple who actually survives the yeah <laughs> and i do like that he still plays like he's he 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 looks into whatever program he's in and he kind of takes on that persona and tries to like have an understanding of how he can get through it. But then there's still a couple physical moments from Ritter where like, you know, he'll punch somebody as the confident detective, but then shake his hand and like grimace because he's just so hurt. Cause he's just a normal dad. Um, or when he right. comes out and he's being the, uh, the man with no name, like Clint Eastwood and he's smoking the cigar and he just can't handle it. So he starts hacking up a lung. Oh yeah. Like, that, that section, kind of especially just straight up back to the future three, oh, it which is, is like yeah. so much of a Western pastiche. It's basically just a Western. It's actually a pretty good Western actually back to the future yeah, three. It's pretty good. Um, I like it better than yeah. the second one. Um, yeah, but, but, this, uh, but, but yeah, yeah. Well, well and again, two, two years before this movie. Yep. See, there you go. So Once both again, Honey, like I Shrunk were... the Kids and Back to the Future Three were before this, and I feel like you can see, you know, a bit of, bit of lifting of that stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, totally. De but but to yeah. your to your point earlier, I think that um, I think that you can see uh, I think that you can see more clearly in particular scenes, uh. John Hyam's uh, affection for specific stuff, like when he is parod parodying like a Sergio Leone movie or when he's parodying uh, a, a film noir, that those scenes are both a little longer and mm -hmm. yep. and that he has more of a more of a feel and the style's for more the, elegant the yeah, replication the, of it and he's put he's you know he he feels like he knows the visual and the craft of those genres really really well been in the game so long mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i think you can feel it more when they're doing stuff that is is more aligned with film and yeah. even like the, there's another i guess uh, gag this is less him reacting but it's uh, the the very beginning where he you know he grabs his gun and he's like okay time to go out on the case puts it in his pants and it falls through right right through the loose <laughs> pants and it just shoots a wall <laughs> next to him yeah. like that kind of stuff is is really secretary good. is like you fired your gun again yeah. mr nabel <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so i like i like all that stuff where it's like he he put on the persona but then you know there's these little failures but he he still kind of powers through them uh, as a as an average dad or father. Um, that kind of stuff I liked a lot. Yeah, yeah. But but most of the like rest of this movie just is him going through the the various channels and and the kids obviously trying to get them out, which they only use to like interesting effect in my opinion once. Yes. Which is uh, during the off with his head uh, French Revolution costume drama section where they're they're trapped in, where the uh, son actually programs his microphone signal that he was using before to broadcast to the the neighborhood, and he gets it into the actual television program and pretends to be God so that he can <laughs> command the French not to, you know, decapitate his, his father. Um, yeah. and that's like kind of like one of the few moments where the kids are actually kind of helpful. And then they immediately just like, 
I guess they realized that that would be the end of the movie. So they just like destroy the microphone and they're like, OK, that's it. Now back into the, you know, uh, the channel hopping uh, that they that, that they are doing where the wife is strapped into the uh, Western pastiche, which does have a pretty good gag, I thought, where she is uh, strapped to the train tracks, which is like a classic Western move, but right next to also a ton of barrels of dynamite right behind her. And she just goes, well, he's going to hit me with a train and blow me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Seems true. like a little bit much. <laughs> yeah, I do like it. Uh, and I will say it gets because um, this is when they start to go through like all the different places that we've even seen previously because he's battling Jeffrey is it Jeffrey uh, Jones, Jeffrey Jones at this point um, yeah and so and I didn't mind that because like it was it was fun to go through so many in a row um, the, the well, yeah, because they between, do Star Trek briefly. Yeah. They get into a violent hockey I, game because Hyams and hockey, man. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, I will say that I think the you know like when they do the actual fighting, the choreography is is a little bit stiff and and, and a little bit um, dull. Oh yeah, it's, I mean the, it's Jeffrey Jones and John Ritter. Yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> yeah, they could only they do really so have. much. I mean, seems. even if it was Dan Aykroyd or I, the, I found in my notes here, the other actor was Richard Dreyfus. That was apparently oh, the right. other lead that they were looking at 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 one point. So you can tell this was meant to be like a much bigger movie. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, Jamie, you know how you were saying before that uh, that in UHF, <clears throat> or or was it Josh? This was hours ago at this point. Uh, <laughs> you were saying that uh, we've been talking that, too long. That in um, that in UHF, like the the only thing that was sort of disappointing to you was when they they had a good rhythm going, and then they kind of had to drop out of it to do some exposition. And right. yeah. one of the things that I appreciate it, with this movie, with Stay Tuned is how within the logic of the movie they they do the sort of channel flips like them exiting one show and entering another which yeah. is they get like, into a good rhythm in the finale for sure yeah because there's yeah, that portal and, that they can keep going through yeah and when they when they sort of do it in the first instance and drop them from the first show you can't win into the second show uh underworld wrestling league they it's it's instantaneous. Like they find it's actually pretty good wrestling choreography, though. Some heavy yeah, hits yeah. that they're getting fucked up with in that section. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering if that was Bam Bam Bigelow that was playing the the big ogre guy. Um, but mm-hmm. but yeah, they it's it's instantaneous. So within the logic of the of the universe, it operates just like flipping a channel where. They, they yeah. don't get any context. They're not walking down a hallway and hearing some sounds before they go in. It's just snap of the fingers and they're just there and in it and trying mm-hmm. to figure out where they are and what's going on. Yeah, and like, I yeah, like yeah. that. And then, and then like, like you're saying, Josh, as it gets towards the end of the movie where, you know, he's, he's trying to, the, the pair of them are trying to ride out the last however long it is that they have before they get released and they're, they're trying to escape from a spike who's chasing them from channel to channel. And so they do get this rhythm going of like, you know, click your fingers and you're on to the next thing. Just like, I, I think they, they do a good job at this point of the movie of replicating, you know, the, the couch potato sitting there flipping through channels and just going mm-hmm. from one world to the next and seeing all these different uh, yeah, things. At one point they're in a medieval swashbuckler and then they're yep. on at one point he's on the three's company set, which he thinks of as its own hell when the, the actors from three's company show up inside and when Ritter, my favorite Ritter one personally. 
Yeah, yes. yeah. Well, so that's. So I like that I he think, just stares at the camera and he's like, "I'm back in my <laughs> my youth." Yeah, hell he's just like, "Oh my god, this yeah. is worse than any of them." My oh, favorite yeah. one though, because it's just so like kind of shockingly violent. Honestly, um, I think I think we're gonna say the same one. Yeah, was it driving over, over Miss Daisy? Yeah, <laughs> I had no idea that was coming at all. And I also an old just, lady just loved gets fucking the mangled. It's crazy. The visual <laughs> gag, yeah, because of him warning the lady, "Hey, watch out!" You know, and then the car, and she steps off the road, and being like, "Oh, she's fine. The car's not gonna hit her." And then the car, literally being driven by Spike, intentionally runs her over. But even better <laughs> is the sign reveal as it pulls away oh, from yeah. John Ritter, who just watched that lady get uh get killed and it's just a giant billboard that says driving over miss daisy (laughs) (laughs) yeah i like that one a lot (laughs) also the uh the uh start me up salt and peppa music video is surprisingly elaborate it it is almost like like uh like weird owl levels of like replicating the full music video in the foggy industrial warehouse and the devil is like the fucking dj (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think I think the the sequence itself goes on a little bit too long and it kind of loses yeah. the, the the fight that they're kind of having back and forth at that point. But I do yeah. really like the production value of it and all the camera work. It does legitimately look like they're trying to capture that kind of like salt and pepper uh uh, music video so I, I do like that. It just it did break up the fight a little bit, which I found kind of strange. But yeah. Yeah. But will, he, uh, he eventually know, wins, the, wins his fight with him there, gets the wife off the train tracks, and he learns the the lesson he's supposed to learn, obviously, which is turn the damn TV off. Pay attention to your wife and kids. Go get back into fencing lessons with your kids, you know, all this kind of stuff. All the all the good stuff. This is some classic anti-TV pro-family propaganda. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They want now you. he only <laughs> what is it they say? He only watches 60 minutes now. They, yes. they want you off the TV and out there in the cinema. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they literally like to, to destroy Spike. They just turn him off or turn the train yeah, they, off or whatever. So that it you is got to learn to turn the TV off messaging yeah. right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, <laughs> which I got to say, I, I, you know, like I on a I, I get the critique on uh, totally. Yeah. But I but I, I do prefer Weird Al just being like, no, no, no. The, the issue isn't the technology. The issue is that there's evil corporate overlords in charge of it and we should be in charge of it. That's and we right. should be making beautiful content for each other. Exactly. And, and and of each other and spreading the good word that he, it's a more optimistic vision of uh, television, whereas this is definitely from its horror origins. It's a it's a very negative, very negative depiction. Yeah. Although I do like the credits, all the TV shows in the credit sequence and all they, they clearly <laughs> right. were just like riffing that they were like, how many different TV shows can we make about the devil? Yeah, it felt like Beverly it was like Hills. leftover ideas that they didn't get to make yes. into sketches. So they're like, well, here's just a couple titles we came up with, you know. I love Lucifer, The Golden Ghouls, Murder She Likes, the best one, <laughs> Fresh Prince of Darkness. Yeah, that's a good Unmarried one. with Children, David Dukes of Hazard, which is that's an edgy <laughs> that's one, an honestly. Edgy one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess this I is television, but Yeah, I think at the end of the day, they're they're very they're an interesting pairing of movies because you can kind of see that both of them were conceived as here's this big collection of parodies and, and, and satire and pastiches of commercials and TV shows and stuff that we want to want to build out. And how are we going to turn this into a movie? You know, and they've, they've both yeah. taken these, these slightly different approaches to it. I think, like we said, you can see that one is more successful due to the more sort of 
genuine affection of the filmmakers yeah. and the star. Uh, and the other one is is a bit more of a kind of well, we have an overall <laughs> negative take on the on the benefit of watching a bunch of TV and like the content of the show themselves. But also, you know, we kind of we we got uh, you know we got a hired gun to come in and shoot it, and we sort of turned it away from what it was originally intended to be, as opposed to in UHF where they they really did just get to do exactly what they wanted to do with that movie. Yeah, you know? with little oversight. <laughs> yeah, and mm. it really makes you wonder if a, if a movie that was much more like a, a straight horror comedy kind of thing, rather than try, so. trying to kind of make it into... I don't know, it just it really does land in that sort of weird area where they don't really seem to make movies anymore in, in the sort of PG-13, you know, it's kind of dark, but... There's no, there's not a lot of like overt violence in it or anything. There's, there's a lot of points in this movie where it feels like a family movie. Like, you know, we were saying yeah. that we, we got the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids vibe. Feels like a family movie, but there's a lot of aspects of it that don't read like that at all. And a lot of yeah. things like all, all of these satanic parodies of like TV shows for adults. You're not expecting kids to get those, I think. No. So it, it definitely. It definitely, uh, you know, is is not as successful as UHF because there is just that sort of that that there's overarching. A there. Yeah, there's an overarching uh, sense of not everybody who is making this movie is is trying to make it the same thing and mm-hmm. and really yeah. really sort of uh, really unclear on what tone the movie is trying to achieve throughout. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, which is why if we're pivoting towards reductive rating round, this one definitely landed in kind of like the three territory for me because I watched it when I was originally doing my full like Peter Hyams watch that I was doing because I was just kind of curious about his career. And this was one of the weirder ones. I will say knowing what it was on rewatch, I did have a little bit more affection for just like how well kind of made it is like on, on Hyams yeah. level, like when it comes to the actual you know, the referential off-brand satanic television shows, like they're they're pretty fun and imaginatively conceived and pretty well realized by him as various obstacle courses the characters need to go through. Like so many of them I think are successful at exactly what they want to be. Like the the film noir one and and the Western one and the Chuck Jones style one. And, you know, I just I just do think that it it weirdly has a a a uh a, you know uh it, it kept the horror critique and it didn't keep the horror vibe that it, it should have if it wanted to do that. I, I feel like made by Joe Dante or made by Tim Burton or, you know, and, and, and more attributable to the original screenplay. And this is probably a little bit stronger of a, of a movie. And also, honestly, maybe if they did get one of the actors that they really wanted, because I don't think anyone's like necessarily bad in this movie, but I do feel like someone like a Richard Dreyfus could have taken, found some more shading to this character in an interesting way. Cause I did think that, you know, even if they could have stuck with the horror version, but still kept with the fact that the dad is going to help them escape because he's so addicted to TV and he's so good at watching TV and he's just watched everything and he knows all the rules. Yeah, I think that that would have been a very interesting kind of direction to to kind of take it as well. But yeah, in comparison to UHF, not quite as a loving, loving or or affectionate for the things that it's depicting, but still pretty well made and and tonally bizarre and strange enough that I was kept engaged for most of my watch for it. And also 
also it hits its credits at like 82 minutes. So despite the yeah, fact that it does that feel a little stretched out with some of the sketches, um, still a pretty short film. Yeah, and it knows when to leave. So I think that's a, definitely yeah. a good attribute. Um, yeah, I think it's a little confused tonally, uh, but when it does hit, I think some of these gags are really good. Um, I do think that Peter Hyams is a, is a great director and has, a, has, has an understanding of, of the kind of mood and tone he has to take on each different program that they enter into. So he, he does a great job of that. Uh, it's just uh, a lot of the, the cutaways from the kids is kind of pointless. Um, and it does destroy the pacing of when you're in the Hellavision. Uh, so I, I just wish they almost completely stuck with the parents the whole time and just maybe had the kids come in at the very end when he had to play God and all of that. Because I didn't need... Kids, the kids should have joined them. Yeah, or that, yeah, that <laughs> probably would have been better to have the whole family kind of be a part of the game show. And then they could even go their separate ways. You could have different programs happening at the same time. Uh, yeah, that probably would yeah. have been a lot better. So... Um, yeah, there's, I, I'm, I'm going to give it like a light three, maybe a solid three. I did like it. I just, I, I re I still felt the time a little bit, even at 85 minutes. So there are moments of this that kind of, uh, get a little bogged down, but, um, it's still, it's still fun and has some good ideas. So I would, I would still check it out. It, it kind of reminded me, although I like this one better, um, just, I guess the simplicity and the kind of suburb thing and, and dealing with a dark fantasy, uh, the gate, um, at 1987, oh, yeah. uh, that one's a, a lot more fun and more consistent in its pacing and its ideas and tone. But, um, yeah, just, I don't know, for some reason it kind of reminded me of it. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to give it a three for you, Andrew. Uh, same. Is this the first time we've been unanimous on both movies? I think so. Um, is it? I don't know. I, I feel like we've been we're pretty unanimous. I feel like most yeah. of the time, I think I can't mm. remember if there's been, I know I fived, uh, I, Wild I think zero we all five time because fuck yeah. Oh right, right, yeah, right. Boy. Yeah, we, we, we all fived uh, the fly and all Ford Phase Four. I feel like unless mm -hmm. uh, I, I think know. so. Well, it's yeah. a it's a three for me for very much the same mm -hmm. reasons that you guys have said. I think the uh, the the failings of the kind of the the tonal mishmash, the um, the kind of sense that we've got different creatives who are potentially kind of working at odds with each other. I didn't see anything about it being like you know a troubled production or lots of clashes or anything, but I think when you have that kind of taking a source from somewhere saying, ooh, actually we want to change this enough to be, you know, for a broader audience or to make it PG or whatever it might be. Um, I think that it's, it's definitely trying to say more about the topic of television than UHF is. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, like we said, that does kind of result in like almost a, almost a kind of sourer tone about mm -hmm. about the the subject matter that it's that it's parodying you know but i think that um i think that much like uhf uh, i think that it's worth watching solely because it's just it's interesting it's not like a lot of other movies that you see out there there are absolutely movies that are collections of sketches there are absolutely movies that are parodies of you know like a tv station or a network or that kind of stuff but both of these are kind of similarly weird in the sense of people have said, hey, I've got an idea for all of these different kinds of sketches and stuff that are all in a similar theme. How are we going to stitch together a movie around this? And I think that they're, I think they're very worth watching as companion pieces because um, mm -hmm. they like, like Stay Tuned also has, I guess, what I kind of like in a movie, which is just a um, 
It's kind of a otherworldly vibe to it, which I enjoy. Uh, a reality that they've created and kind of shunt their characters through. I'm into that. Solid three for me. Uh, and, and yeah, that's it. Thanks for having me back again, guys. Yeah, thanks oh, yeah. for coming. Well, thanks so much. Thanks so much for, for joining us. That's going to wrap it up for uh, this week. That was... Uh, I don't know why I'm already blanking on this. UHF <laughs> from 1989, as well as Stay Tuned from 1992. Thanks so much, uh, Andrew, for bring, bringing this pairing. It was a lot of fun. Uh, this is the part of the show where if uh, you've got anything to plug, that's usually where we have you do that. What's going on in Bunta Vista world? Uh, we're just making podcasts. We're just <laughs> we're just doing, a, I don't know, fifth or sixth Talking year. Talking about of... all the news in Australia. <laughs> Talking about weird news from around the world. Uh Bizarre, mm-hmm. bizarre news, strange segments, uh, stuff you very likely would not have heard covered in other places. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you're, you're, you're like, you're doing UHF, but for news. That's right. Just flipping around. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get, you know? <laughs> Come on by and awesome. have a listen. Yeah, we can definitely recommend you go and uh, check out everything that Andrew and and Bunta Vista are up to. Uh, for our listeners, we are going to be back in one week's time where... There is a uh, brand new Scream movie currently in theaters. People are chatting about it. Yes. Uh, and uh, we've covered, we've already done our Scream episode, which uh, if you haven't heard, we did a sc- big Scream triple feature episode. It is actually one of our more listened to episodes. So mm-hmm. go back and check that out if you want to, uh, you know, if you're if you're like, oh, why haven't I seen them do a Scream episode yet? We have already. Go back. Go check it out. Um, but as a result, we uh, wanted to hit uh, some Wes Craven uh, and uh, talk about maybe some B-sides, some lesser-known Wes Craven films that people don't talk about as much uh, to, to show the man some love. Because last year I went through almost every film that he had made. I think I actually did watch every feature. I even watched his porno. Nice. Uh, I watched every, everything that he made. It was, it was a bizarre time. And uh, I came out the other side with one prevailing favorite, though, of the his kind of underrated stuff, which was a movie called Shocker. Gotcha. which is a football player versus a uh, serial killer and uh, starring Peter Berg. It is a wild, wacky film, and it actually has a channel hopping climax that is not dissimilar uh, oh. from some stuff that we saw in Stay Tuned. It all connects so I again. can't wait. Yes. So I can't wait for you all to see Wes Craven tackle a set piece like that. It's it's kind of uh, dizzying how good it is. Um, And we're going to be pairing it with his uh, other film, Deadly Friend, which is a little bit more of a uh, simple uh, kind of like kids teen. It's got a little bit of a slasher element to it, but like it's like a little kid invents a little robot and the robot goes around town and there's a killer out there and uh, most notable because it has one of the most bizarre deaths in Wes Craven's entire catalog of films that I can't wait to hear Jamie react to, which is a (laughs) basketball exploding someone's head. Yeah. Oh, that's (laughs) that's brilliant is what that is. Yeah. And it it is a chunky practical effect, I will say. Beautiful. I can't wait. I'm very excited to talk about that. And then uh, in two weeks time over on the main feed, we have a uh, special guest uh, joining us where I believe we are going to be talking about artificial intelligence films. But I can't say for sure because I have not seen either of these films, but they're both from the 70s. One is called Demon Seed, uh, which I believe is by Donald Camel, who is the uh, guy who did um, White of the Eye. 
so cool. it's going to be our our first time talking about him since we did white of the eye on the show and we're going to be pairing it with a film from 1970 called colossus the forbin project which is which is one <laughs> i hadn't even heard of honestly so yeah, me i was i was like this is a very cool pairing and i'm very excited to talk with that guest in two weeks so look forward to uh that episode of some like 70s science fiction i think it is so awesome that's what uh, we'll be talking about in two weeks' time. So, yeah, that wraps it up for uh, everything this week. Uh, thanks so much uh, for listening, and keep us easy. Keep us easy, everybody. <laughs>